Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina Thursday morning, October 27, 84366109370. You're normally accustomed to us being punctual. We're even more punctual than we uh, normally are, right? <clears throat> about a minute ahead of schedule. Am I right? <laughs> minute early. So, so if, th- if your alarm's going off at 606, you haven't heard us yet. You'll miss a minute of brilliance. Or you've missed um, us. You'll miss a minute of trying to get in gear and get engaged and get rolling and get going any any idea what happened or why we we're meant i mean not it's a big deal to me, no, Give me no. another minute Friel shaking his head like yeah i know what's going on yeah um it jumped uh our news hit but uh the news was in there it I saw jumped it. our news hit yeah but it was in there i saw okay. it so i'm not okay. sure if we pause right now hold on everybody just pause and we're going to have a couple seconds of silence here why are we doing that so our stations in sumter and orangeburg have just joined us okay this was just a, an anomaly on the the foreign station okay let's do this again you ready let's start over good morning welcome to wake up carolina it's thursday morning october 27 843 6610937 for you 16 people in florence that listen for you nine people in sumter that listen for you four people in orangeburg that listen thank you yes and we're more punctual now we're punctual as usual um don't have a lot of sports to talk about but i do have one story and I'd, I'd love to get someone's opinion. This should rile the Clemson faithful up. But it's not me being a Gamecock fan. It's not me trying to instigate or provoke some argument between, you know, um, a radio show host who pulls for a team and an audience who pulls for multiple different teams. Um, had an interesting conversation yesterday with a big Clemson fan. Good friend of mine, big Clemson fan. He's at least as big a Clemson fan as I am a Gamecock. He's a dear friend. He and I have business interests together and we were talking about you know the Gamecock turnaround I mean they're playing inspired football they're still not real real good but they're not making a lot of mistakes they're capitalizing on other teams that make mistakes Um, they probably won a game and a half more than we expected them to win the Arkansas was a questionable game they lost the Kentucky game was a questionable game they won the A&M was a questionable game they won um A&M and Kentucky probably have better players than South Carolina. Arkansas has uh, probably the same kind of player. Anyway, they're they're about a game and a half ahead of schedule. I mean, I think the majority of people had them at, you know, four and three at best. Three and four would have been reasonable to expect. Missouri and Vanderbilt coming up. Um, So we were basically dissecting the Clemson, excuse me, the Gamecock football season thus far. Now there's some, some contests looming around the bend, Tennessee and Clemson in particular, that um that you got to say they'll be uh, overwhelming underdogs in both of those games. Tennessee could be interesting because Tennessee has a game next week against Georgia. Anyway, I mean, there's some questions there. Um, but here's where the conversation ended. Forget the Gamecocks for a second. I mean, yeah, they're playing inspired. Uh, they had 17 points and 19 yards <laughs> against A&M. <laughs> uh, A&M made some mistakes. The crowd contributed to some of those mistakes. So if you're a Gamecock fan, you're feeling a little bit, uh, you're optimistic about your future. looks like Beamer is, is an excitable coach. He's got the, um, I, th- I saw yesterday, it's a sellout again. It's a um, it's an excitable crowd. They've waited with bated breath to see a turnaround happen right before their very eyes. So there's a reason to be optimistic about the Gamecocks, but it's limited. I mean, you don't believe you're going to be the 14 playoff, right? I mean, you're hoping you don't have to go back to the Mayonnaise Bowl. You hope to get to the Outback Bowl or maybe the um, the Gator Bowl or something like that. But no Gamecock fan uh, his, in his right mind says, we're ready for the Final Four. We're ready for the 14th playoff. You simply are not. Um, try to beat Missouri. Try to beat Vanderbilt. Uh, somebody asked me yesterday, would you take two and one the next three games? Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, one includes a trip to Gainesville, and any time you go on the road to the conference, it's a it's a tough place to play in Gainesville. So I'd certainly take two of the next three. Uh, welcoming Tennessee at seven and three, yeah, sign me up for that. But here's where the here's where the conversation ended up. Okay. And um, Clemson will probably be undefeated, right? I mean, Clemson's got to go to South Bend, but Notre Dame is what three and four. I mean, four and three ish. Somewhere there about. They don't look to be the perennial power we expected Notre Dame to be. They had a coaching change. Um, the jury's still out. The verdict's still out on whether the coach can get it done at Notre Dame or not. Notre Dame, and th- this is kind of where I'll end up. Notre Dame will be a, a, a key figure in the 14 playoff. Clemson goes to Notre Dame, and Notre Dame goes to Southern California. So there will be common opponents. Um, how does Clemson play against Notre Dame? How does Southern California play against um notre dame we shall see but here's where the the debate is and i and once again this will get clemson fans riled up and i'm just trying to throw it out there because a clemson buddy of mine sees a scenario where clemson runs to the table and gets left out of the 14 playoff i'm like dude stop with that he said i'm serious i mean this could be the year that clemson runs the table is acc champion wins the championship game against a north carolina maybe um but then you've got Michigan, Ohio State, and you've got the the three-headed monster, Tennessee, Georgia, and Alabama. My Clemson friend believes that the most likely scenario is two Big Ten teams and two SEC teams in the college football Final Four. Play this out in your head. So you've got Tennessee and Georgia in Athens. Let's say, for argument's sake, that Georgia wins. They'll be the prohibited favorite. They're in Athens. They're the home team. They're the proven commodity. Tennessee's probably a year or two ahead of schedule. But for argument's sake, let's say Tennessee goes in to to um to Athens a week from Saturday as the number three ranked team in the country. Georgia's one, Tennessee's three. Tennessee loses a barn burner. They lose thirty-seven to thirty-four. They lose twenty-eight to twenty-four. They lose forty-five to forty-one. I mean, the game could have gone either way, but the Bulldogs hold on at home and win. And then Georgia goes to the SEC championship game and plays Alabama. Whoever wins that game, unless Alabama stubs their toe again, whoever wins that game is in. I mean, we agree with that. One loss, Alabama, undefeated Georgia. The SEC conference championship game winner will be in the final four. Tennessee sitting there with only one loss on their resume, and that is at Athens against the number one ranked team in the country. Now, they can't go get beat 37-7. to but if they go to Athens and lose 37 to 34, there'll be two SEC teams in the college football playoff. Uh, another scenario of which two SEC teams go. Let's say Georgia beats Tennessee, goes to the SEC championship game, loses to Alabama 28 to 24, 45 to 41. Alabama and Georgia probably go to the SEC championship game. So there's a better than 50% chance that the SEC will have two teams in the college football Final Four. Call it SEC bias. Call it favoritism. Call it it just matter, means more. Whatever you choose to, that is a, a pretty likely scenario that the SEC has two um, because they've got three players. They've got Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, all in the mix. No question about it. I mean, they're three of the top five or six teams in America via the pollsters. So let's go to the Big Ten. So I think it's easy to establish that the SEC is going to have, I mean, unless the wheels come off, unless something stupid happens, and it can. I mean, Auburn could beat Alabama. You know, uh, South Carolina could beat Tennessee. 
I mean, there's some crazy things that could happen, but if it stays true to form and if the prohibitive favorite wins the game, you're going to have Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee all competing for a spot in the um, in the Final Four. There's a scenario that all three make it, but that includes Clemson losing, Southern Cal losing another game, Michigan-Ohio State losing to someone other than Michigan and Ohio State. So if you've got two SEC teams in, where do the other two come from? Well, I mean, obviously Clemson is going to be one of the candidates to get in. Um, one lost Southern California, one lost Oregon. They'll have to figure that out on the West Coast. But here's where my Clemson buddy believes gets a little bit funky. Michigan goes to Ohio State. Let's say Michigan is undefeated. Let's say Michigan loses a barn burner in Columbus, 37-34, 45-43. Uh, a last-minute field goal saves the Buckeyes, and the Buckeyes advance to the Big Ten championship game against whomever from the other side. How do you leave a one-loss Michigan team out whose only loss is a very closely contested match against number one or two-rated Ohio State in Columbus. So there's a pretty likely scenario that the four-team playoff will consist of two from the SEC, two from the Big Ten. Is that good for college football? I mean, it's obviously not good for Clemson. It's obviously not good for Oregon or Southern California. It's not good for the Pac-12 or the, or the Big 8. But is is there is that a reasonable scenario? My Clemson buddy, once again, this is his brainstorm. This is not mine. He's trying to talk him. I mean, he's kind of a negative guy. He's, he's a little bit like me. <laughs> Probably why we get along so well. He'll find, I mean, there'll be 99 things right in the world and one wrong, and he'll play out that run wrong. Uh, it's the Towns Van Zant rabbit hole. I mean, I was introducing my buddy to Towns Van Zant. Oh. He responded to me, hey, man, there's no end to that rabbit hole. I mean, there, there is no bottom to that rabbit hole. Um, but I think you're nodding your head. I mean, you get yeah. the SEC oh, reality. Yeah. I mean, that, that's pretty easy to understand. Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama. I mean, if things play true to form, unless Tennessee gets you know smoked. I mean, if Tennessee goes to Georgia and Georgia beats the wheels off of them, then the prestige is gone. Or a lowly team like South Carolina happens yeah, to luck up and but be. But that's, that's probably less likely but those than the, going the, to Athens anomalies. and getting yeah. smoked. I mean, they could go to Athens in a week from Saturday and get beat. You know, I mean, they, I mean, they could have one of those games. That Georgia could have one of those games that um, it just looks like, okay, we thought Tennessee was two years ahead of schedule. Obviously, they are. Um, yeah, I mean, the Gamecocks could beat them. It's kind of interesting if you're a Clemson, if you're a Clemson fan, you kind of need to pull for South Carolina <laughs> against uh, against Tennessee, and you really need to pull for the Gamecocks because it gives you a quality win down the road. When these people gather in the big smoke-filled room and decide who goes and who does it, they're going to look at quality wins. Who has quality wins? Who has quality losses? Is Syracuse a quality win? I don't know. I mean, they're a top-20 team, but are they? You know, is a win over Syracuse at home a bigger deal to the um to the people on the committee than a one field goal lost by Michigan to Ohio State. I mean, that those are the sorts of dynamics that will play themselves out. And my contrarian Clemson friend has convinced himself that his Tigers are going to get screwed. The Big Ten and SEC are going to have two teams each in the Final Four playoff. And if it plays out like that, I mean, I could see a member of the committee. I could see a lot of many members of the committee and say, we're really going to send Michigan. We're not going to let Michigan go. And their only loss is at Columbus two number one ranked Ohio State by a field goal? We're not going to let Tennessee go when their only loss, I mean, they've got a win over Alabama. See, that's what Tennessee has. Tennessee has a win over Alabama. I mean, that that's that's a big deal. It counts. <laughs> it counts a lot in the grand in the grand scheme of things. So that's kind of, you know, that that's a um a scenario 
of which could it really puts Clemson fans, in my opinion, in kind of a unique position. You need to pull for the Gamecocks against Tennessee. I know you don't want to, and I get that. But but for for your best interest, in the name of Clemson football doing better in the grand scheme of things, you, you need the Gamecocks to beat Tennessee, and then you need uh, the Gamecocks to you need the Gamecocks to beat Missouri, Vanderbilt, Florida, and Tennessee. That way, when South Carolina comes to Death Valley. They're a top 15 team, and that is a legitimately quality win. I mean, if the, I, mean I, I don't expect South Carolina to do that, but if they did, I mean, if they did that, I mean, if, if South Carolina runs the table, they're not, but if they were to hypothetically run the table, go to Death Valley with a win over, you know, in the, in the Missouri Vanderbilt, not a big deal, Tennessee, Florida. Okay, we're talking now. I mean, you're talking about a top 12 team. And, and, and that really validates, legitimizes Clemson's season. And I, you, you've not heard me one time say the ACC is weak. I'm not going down that road. But the ACC is not the SEC. It is not the Big Ten. And the Big Ten and SEC have this notoriety and prestige in college football that carries a lot of weight. I mean, it simply does. So, um, yeah, would, would it be good for the game if we had two from the SEC, two from the Big Ten, in a four-team playoff, no ACC representation, no Pac-12 representation, uh, no Notre Dame, no Big Eight uh, participation. Is that good for football? We, we've argued, uh, many sportscasters argue, that the Big Ten and SEC are really beginning to separate themselves from the rest of college athletics football in particular because of the monetary advantages they have. And they do. I mean, they, I think the Big Ten just, um, the Big Ten just uh, signed a uh billion dollar i'm gonna imagine that a billion we've talked about hundreds of millions of dollars the big 10 just signed a a tv contract in excess of one billion dollars for the television rights to broadcast big 10 athletic events um the secs i think was 940 million dollars so the big 10 got a little more bang for its buck in some of those negotiations somebody texted me and said am i saying a two loss alabama gets in no no, I mean, the two-loss Alabama does not get in. But if Georgia beats Alabama the SEC championship game, you've got undefeated number one-ranked Georgia and a Tennessee team with one loss, its only loss to number one-ranked Georgia in Athens, that's going to turn some heads. I mean, if Tennessee wins out, except for Athens, I mean, they're sitting there not having to play Alabama again in an SEC championship game. They're not the conference champion. They're not playing at the conference championship. But the only blemish on their record is, is a field goal. Now, that once again, they can't go to Athens and get boat raced. You can't go to Athens and get, you know, get your doors blown off. I mean, that just, that diminishes the value you have with the committee deciding whether or not um, it wants you in a four-team, a four-team playoff. Uh, there, there's my story. Uh, I don't know. It's not a sports story, but my, um, my rehashed conversation with a good Clemson friend of mine, and I tried to play, you know, sympathetic Gamecock. Dude, that's not going to happen. I mean, there's no way that'll happen. And it, you can't convince him that when they go in that room and close that door, they're in this enormous bias for the SEC and Big Ten. I mean, he's, he's that guy. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody in this world. Once I make my mind up, there's no way in Hades you'll change my mind. And he's got his mind made up that we're not going to get a fair shake. The ACC's not going to get a fair shake when, that, when all those hot shots go in that room to decide who goes and who doesn't. That I'll assure you, the Big Ten and SEC will get far more uh, than they deserve. And some of these, um, I don't say lesser conferences, that's unfair, but some of the conferences not known for big brand football. I mean, Clemson's a big brand. There's no doubt about that. I'm, I'm not diminishing 
uh, what Clemson does or what they've done. I, I want to certainly strongly suggest that, but uh, but they're a bit of a misfit. Uh, you know, the, the second best team of the ACC right now is Wake Forest. I mean, what sort of prestige does Wake carry on the on the national stage? I've said it. I'll say it again. I think Wake Forest is the consummate overachiever in college football. But when you talk about, you know, great programs and great brands and, you know, uh, elite athletes, you just don't talk about Wake Forest. And right now, the ACC, I think Wake is, what, number 10 or 11 or 12 or something like that in the country. Uh, how would Wake Forest stack up against Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, Ohio State, Michigan? Um, I mean, they gave Clemson a fit. I mean, they gave Clemson everything they wanted with inferior athletes. You know, with, with my, I would argue with much inferior athletes. Um it's hard to believe what Wake does, but they do, but they're just not considered. I mean, when you go in that room and close that door and have that debate and, and someone says, what is Clemson's biggest win? And someone says Wake Forest, that's just not like saying Tennessee beat Alabama. You, you see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's just there, there's a lot of a perception that comes into play once you go in that room. And it'll be very interesting to watch it play itself. Moral of the story if you're a Clemson fan, pull for them Gamecocks. Pull <laughs> for them go. Gamecocks. I mean, if you're worried about getting left out of the room or getting left out of the 14 playoff, you, you need them Gamecocks to keep winning. And I know that's contradictory to the way you're hardwired, but you're a Tiger fan. You want the best for your Tigers. Well, the best for your Tigers may require the hated Gamecocks, you know, having a better year than maybe you want them to have or they even expected um, to have. Let's take a break. We'll be back. In just a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Playing um playing some hypotheticals out here first thing this morning before we get into the world of American politics. A lot to talk about there. We got four hours. Yeah, let's go to the phone. <laughs> David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning, Ken. Uh, saw my man Herschel last night. He was on the Hannity show, but he wasn't on there with Lindsey Scott. He was on there with Lindsey Graham. And I was going to say, y'all look at them. They were sitting side by side. Look at Herschel's neck and look at Lindsey's neck. And I'll say we need more people in the Senate with a brawler bull neck than what Lindsey's got. And I was going to ask you this, Ken. You remember the name Roy Moore? I do. You do. Remember back in the day, they accused him of having these affairs with these teens at some kind of Alabama mall or Orange Julius. And then the next thing you know, who showed up on the news when all that was going on? Do you remember that? I don't remember. Uh, Gloria Allred? Gloria Allred. Who showed up yesterday against Herschel? Of course. Right on time. That's her job. Now now you see how that whole thing works, and I'll leave you guys at that. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. You know, I did see that yesterday, and it's interesting. Gloria Allred always shows up. When a Republican looks like they're doing better in the poll than we expected them to do, I think the state of Georgia really and truly um, got caught by surprise. And I'm talking about Stacey Abrams and the Democratic operatives in Georgia. Um, when Walker got when Walker won the nomination, I mean it, it was a uh, you know strong back, weak mind kind of thing. Something about what Jeff said yesterday. Um, you know, football player doesn't matter if he's black or white. I mean, football player jock. Uh, you know, former, I mean, he's kind of playing off that. I mean, there, there are a lot of people who take their sports, their former sports notoriety and cash in. Rex Chapman at the University of Kentucky, remember he played in the NBA for a while? Chapman had some issues. Rex Chapman built one of the best financial planning businesses in all of Kentucky on the back of being a great basketball player. 
You know what I mean? Everybody wanted to do business with Rex Chapman because he was kind of a football, excuse me, a basketball legend in the bluegrass state. Well, being a basketball legend in Kentucky is about equal to being a football legend in Georgia. So Walker, of course, he's cashing in on some of the name notoriety and accomplishments and endearment he has gained from the, uh, from the football fans in the state of Georgia. And there are a lot of football fans in the state of Georgia. But all of a sudden, Walker acquits himself okay. He comes across as genuine, authentic. Nobody's accusing Walker of being a member of Mensa. I think Jeff tried to you know, accuse him of being similar. His deliveries and his acumen and his understanding is similar to Fetterman's. Fetterman has a, a fiscal and mental disability right now. He, he may heal. He may not. We don't know. I watched uh, Walker got interviewed by Brett Baer last night. I watched every second of that. And I was thinking about Jeff's call yesterday, and I said, there is no comparison. None. How could you even make that unless you're desperate, Unless you're a desperate liberal. liberal. I mean, he was I mean, way he, off base. And you just refuse to see the truth for what the truth is. Walker does not have great command of the English language. He does not sound like your Princeton professor. But he sounds incredibly authentic, real, genuine, um, and once again, I don't think he's afraid. See, that's a big deal to me. Are we going to send real men to Washington? And I'll tell you, it matters to me that Walker does have that neck and that set of shoulders. And, and I know he was one of the all-time great running backs in America. I doubt Walker gets stared down by Chuck Schumer. You know what I mean? When Nancy Pelosi pays Hershey Walker a visit, I doubt Walker says, yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. I'll get back in line. You know, I know you're in the majority and you can do this to me. I just got to say, Walker just kind of reflects on, yeah, I remember that third and six we had against Tennessee in Neyland Stadium when Coach uh, Dooley gave it to me and said, Herschel, got to get a seven yard some way, somehow. And he just figured out a way to fight through whatever it was in his way to get that seven yards. That inspires me to know we're sending a, um, a guy who has put some pads on, put some cleats on had some dirt under his fingernails and maybe some blood on his elbows after a grueling football contest. What's he worried about? I mean, when you say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, Herschel's probably about every bone in his body's probably been broken at one time or another. The spoken word is not going to intimidate that guy. But here's the issue with Walker. He's a black guy who won't get in line. He's an America firster. He's going to become a symbol. I mean, he'll be a great symbol, Rev. He'll be a national symbol of why African Americans need to better consider the Republican Party, the America First agenda, and he'll encourage, he'll empower, he'll do a lot of things that worry the liberal left. And now they're going to do anything they can to impugn his integrity, to drag up everything he's ever done. I mean, we're talking about 1989 and 1993. And it may or may not have happened. He denies it, but the media treats it as if it is true. Gloria Allred shows up to speak on behalf of a, and then you know, a, a disenfranchised female back in the '90s. That's just what they do. But they would have never messed with Herschel had he not gotten to 47, 48 in the poll. They feel this Senate seat slipping away, and they're going to do any a lie cheat. Still doesn't matter. I mean, that's 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 in page one of the socialist playbook. Lie, cheat, steal, if you must, to maintain power. Let's go to the phone. Here's Dale and Florence. Good morning, Dale. Hey, guys. And, you know, I'm going to be real interested to see Robert's next poll up in Pennsylvania. I figure Fetterman's got to take at least a half a point hit from that uh, debate the other night. And I'm also going to be interested to see which way Robert words the questions. Um, to the people of Pennsylvania to see which way they're going to go up there. 
I don't know how you could watch that the other night. I mean, it's like watching Biden calling the names of dead people and, and, and so forth. You know, where's where's what's your name at? Uh, and, and to think that there's people, a lot of people that are going to vote for this guy is compromised as he is. Same thing with Biden. And the bad thing about Biden is, you know, you go to impeach this guy, you end up with Kamala Harris. It's like, oh, my gosh, talk about going from the frying pan into the fire. But, um, yeah, I'm going to be curious to see. And I think that that, that uh, Herschel did purport himself extremely well last night. And there, you're, you're right, Dave. There's no comparison. There, there's no comparison at all between him and Fetterman. I don't know what. What, what Jeff is seeing, I, I think he's seeing something that helps him sleep at night. But um, I'm not seeing it. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. I mean, being well-spoken is one thing. Uh, not not well-spoken doesn't mean dumb. I mean, when you watch Fetterman, Fetterman reminds me of a 10-year-old trying to tell a lie and can't remember the lie. He rehearsed a lie in his bedroom. I mean, he broke something. And his mom, he knows his mom gets home from work at 5 o'clock. And he practices the lie. And he practices the lie. And then his mom walks in the room. And it's like, I, I don't remember the lie now. I'm, I'm scared. I'm for fracking, and I, and I, I, stick, I, I stick, stick, stick by the fracking. Mean, I'm for fracking. I've always, I've, I've, always, I've always been. It's a learning. I mean, he has a physical and mental disability right now. And once again, he may uh, get well. He may do just fine a year or two or three from now. Or this may be Fetterman for the rest of his life. It's a human tragedy. And here's the tragic part of this. The liberals want power so bad. They want to have that. That dependable vote on abortion so bad, they'll send a guy out there who has absolutely no business running for office, but they'll put him there anyway because they want to kill babies at any point in a woman's pregnancy. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. The smartest people in the world and the smartest people in the country have what got us in this shape we're in right now. Heck, I'm about ready for a few dumbasses to run the country. Evidently, <laughs> uh, the smartest people in the world can't run it. <laughs> got you know, can't do anything right. So maybe we don't need a bunch of daggone uh, men's of people running. And maybe they're too damn smart for their own good. But i tell you another thing I was sitting there been thinking. I saw, I was listening, looking at one of your articles you sent me and then I got to thinking about if I were a doctor, how angry I would be. And I wondered if there's any doctor out there that wants to defend the vaccination, which is not a vaccination. You started every time you turn around. There's another young person died. And don't say that's normal. That's just like they were. You know, people died during COVID, and we we said that was normal for people to die. We were horrible. But so you got all these young people died suddenly of heart attacks and seem all of a sudden healthy. And nobody in the medical community has got the guts to question whether or not that has something to do with the shot. And then I'd like to talk to some of these preachers out there. I wonder how many preachers have woke up one morning and said, you know what? I got to We never should have shut down church. Yeah, people have the option always to go or not to go. But the people that wanted to go, we should have let them go. I wonder how many preachers are sitting there saying, and I wonder how many people realize that it was the Democrat Party. Some Republicans, but the Republicans started wising up a little quicker than the Democrats. Hell, there's still some Democrat states that are in states of emergency. And then you look at the, the math scores and the size scores and the reading scores, what states got the biggest hits? The ones that were shut down the longest. Which ones were shut down the longest? The Democrat states. 
you know, I'm just sitting there thinking about all of this stuff, and I'm wondering where these people are and whether or not they, you know, they would come forward and say, you know what, I was duped, or either are they really angry, and who are they angry at? And I'll tell you another thing, too. Right now, your Lindsey Grahams and your, and, and your Mitch McConnells and even some of the people that you may think, like your Ted Cruz, your Mike Lees, you may think are on their side, right now they're all conniving about how are we going to bring these people on, uh, in line, your Herschel Walkers, if he wins, and people like that. How are we going to manipulate these dummies? How are we going to get them? We're so much smarter than they are. And get everybody back on track. And what are we going to do to get rid of Donald Trump still? I'm telling you right now, your Ted Cruz's, your Lindsey Graham's, of course, your McConnell's. And that, that are, but there are people that you don't realize that would beat them and lied all along that don't want Trump anywhere near Washington, D.C. And right now, your Republicans are right now conniving right along with Democrats and with other Republicans to screw all of us over. The smartest people in the room are right now figuring out how to screw all of us dummies over. We need to send some dummies over there to take care of them, I guess. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I was thinking about it last night. I, if I'm Walker, I don't know if I want Lindsay there. I mean, I really don't. I don't know how I cope, I don't know, in, in, entwined or, or entangled. I want to get with some of the establishment slash. I mean, I get these guys see the writing on the wall and they want to be America firsters. They want to convince you they're always been American firsters. They're here for you if they need you. If I were Herschel, Blake Masters, J.D. Vance, um, I, there, there's some help I would accept, but I'd be careful about, you know, people like Lindsey. And, and I get it's a neighboring state, and I don't know what Lindsey's numbers are in Georgia. I mean, as a Lindsey's kind of a national politician. I mean, he's a spokesperson for the grand old party. I mean, he comes on Meet the Press and acquits himself well. Uh, he goes on Fox News a lot. So Lindsey's got somewhat of a, um, a, a national persona, but I don't know how much help I'd want from, um, from Lindsey. I want to go back to something. I sent Breeze a, um, a text yesterday or actually a, an article I read, and I've been reading a lot on a guy named Alex Berenson. Some of you know who he is. Some of you don't. He's a former New York Times reporter, investigative reporter. He covered big pharma and the healthcare sector of the economy for the New York Times for many, many years until he started wanting to report on things that the New York Times didn't want reported on. And he, and he talks about the death of journalism. He talks about the, um, talk about the military industrial complex. He talks about the pharmaceutical healthcare complex. It's almost supplanting the military industrial complex. And he, he wrote an article in one of the Substacks I read uh, yesterday. And um, I mean, Barrison has a lot to say and he does uh, a lot of investigative journalism as it relates to, I mean, he got deplatformed at Twitter. I mean, that's all you need to know. I mean, the guy wrote a scathing article about Pfizer, and he got deplatformed uh, from Twitter. Uh, speaking of Twitter, did you see the news? Let that sink in. Did y'all see that? Mm-hmm. Nobody saw that? Yeah, I saw so it. So Elon Musk he, tweets. He's carrying the yeah, sink. Yeah, he's got a sink, a literal, I mean, he's got a sink in his hand, and he walks into the Twitter headquarters, and the deal is to close tomorrow. I mean, he becomes the formal owner. Or you know whatever you call. It. I mean, I don't know if he would get the the. I mean, not the sole proprietor. He's the um. Uh, he has the largest shares of the business. I mean, he's got some other equity partners and finance agents involved in this. But Elon Musk will be the boss man. Here I am with Pamplico Enian. <laughs> He'll be the boss man at Twitter. And he changed his Twitter handle to Chief Twit. Yeah, and it's interesting. So um, so the Washington Post is reporting that Elon Musk is going to fire seventy five percent 
of the 7,500 employees at Twitter within the first 30 days. So they wrote an article, excuse me, they um they sent an op-ed, it might have been the New York Times, on behalf of the 7,500 employees at Twitter, you know, begging Musk to not um, fire, dispose of 75% of the 7,500 employees. So ABC News did a story last night, if you saw this or not, ABC News said that this is uh, draconian cuts and it would compromise the platform's capacity to police content. Good. But I wrote that down verbatim because <laughs> when, when, when I'm watching ABC News and um, compromise the platform's capacity to police content. Elon Musk is now the most evil man in America. <laughs> I mean, he's right there with Trump now. We celebrated his um his innovation and his um creativity and space exploration and green energy and the electric vehicle. I mean, he's been a I mean, he's been an innovative extra, innovator extraordinaire until now. He buys Twitter along with his other equity partners and financial agents, and and he's going to fire 75% of the employees. But I mean, he says, I'm going to replace them, but he doesn't want to replace, you know, he believes those people are of such a corrupt mindset that there's no salvaging those people. I mean, he ain't Jesus. He ain't trying to save souls, okay? I mean, he's trying to reestablish credibility within a company that he believes is the digital town square. I mean, that's what he refers to Twitter as. So he's going to fire roughly, what, 5,500 people and replace them with those that he doesn't believe have been indoctrinated or brainwashed by the former ways of Twitter. That is so interesting to me. And ABC News says that Twitter, excuse me, that Musk put at risk the social media's platform capacity to police content. Censorship is what it's called. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Wendell in Hartsville. Good morning, Wendell. Uh, good morning, Ken and Riff. I've got a kind of a different question for you this morning. Yesterday, I got a 19-year-old son that's going to be voting for the first time in the midterm, and I printed off the sample ballot just to give him my idea of what it looks like. In this uh, election cycle, we got two amendments down at the bottom to, to vote yes or no for, one on the general reserve fund and one on the capital reserve fund. And I was hoping that uh, Ken could kind of expound on that to, to the listeners and maybe give us some education on what that is for and if it's uh, what the pros and cons are on that. And I'll, I'll listen all that. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that question. Yeah, there'll be two referendums. Um you're basically, I mean, the, the, the General Assembly is, the General Assembly wants to know what the public thinks, that they have a certain amount of cash they have to keep in reserves. And at the county, you had to, I mean, I know when I was on county council in Florence County, we had to keep 180 days worth of operating uh, cash in reserve. In other words, if we didn't collect another ad valorem dollar in taxes, we could run the county for 180 days. I've never been to the General Assembly, so I don't know what that number is. Um, despite presiding over the Senate, I didn't work through budget committees and, and subcommittees and whatnot. The other is a capital reserve fund. So a certain percentage, and I'll get this better explained tomorrow when our um, delegation is in here with us, because I mean, they're working on this, and they would have stronger opinions than I. But in essence, they're, they're asking we the people whether we think they should have more money in reserve, a certain percentage of the general fund, a certain percentage of the capital investment fund, um, I mean, I could, I could, depending on who's paying me, <laughs> I mean, I hate to say that, but if I were a consultant or a lobbyist, I mean, I could be for or against. Um, there's something about government having a lot of money in reserve. To me, that suggests they got too much of my damn money. 
You know what I mean? It's always, well, I mean, if you've got 7% of general, if you've got 7% of all the expenditures in reserve uh, and you're asking for nine, what, what are you doing with the seven? It's a little bit like a church. I mean, I remember going to a church one day and they had a business meeting and, and somebody said they had $3 million in the bank. And one of the uh, parishioners said, well, why does a church need $3 million in the bank? I mean, why aren't we doing God's work? Why aren't we helping the homeless, you know, the hungry, the downtrodden? I mean, isn't that what the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about? I mean, I understand being financially responsible. I get that. And I understand rainy day funds. But, but the debate is how much is enough and I guess how much is too much. And, um, and once again, if I were a consultant, a lobbyist, I could honestly um, talk myself into being for either or of um, either or side of that of that equation. But uh, Wendell, I'll dig in with the delega- delegation tomorrow and get their personal opinions. Uh, but that's what they're asking you. Does the state keep enough in reserves or should it keep more? And they've also got this capital fund. Um, does the state have enough in that capital fund or do they need uh, to keep more? And I honestly, once again, as a member of the county council, I had a hand in the budgeting process. As lieutenant governor, I did not. I simply presided over the Senate. I never sat in on a budget subcommittee meeting or a budget committee meeting. I never haggled over what we keep in and what we don't. I never tried to Christmas tree, you know, parts of the budget for my district or another district or cut deals with fellow members of the General Assembly. Uh, My job was to kind of facilitate and preside. And, you know, that kind of excludes you from some of the, the minutiae of detail as to um, why you need to have that much money in reserve or why you don't. But when you got my word, uh, tomorrow at 8 o'clock, if you're able to listen, I'll have um, one, two, or three of our um, Republican delegation members here, and we'll try to kind of get to the bottom of that and let them recommend to you what they believe is in our state's uh, best interest. But those are the, uh, those are the referendum questions, and, um, and that's kind of empowering people. I think they're on behalf of um, I don't know, the Republican Party is probably pushing to find out more about who wants what, when, and where. But um, I don't know that I could honestly advise someone on how to, you know, what, what, what do I think is the best, because I don't know the budget at the state level as well as I would if I were a former member or current member of the General Assembly. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments reggie armstrong is with us thursday morning good morning sir how are you doing great thank you ken so, so let's let's do this we talked a lot about the midterms <laughs> we talked about strategy i mean this candidate has this strategy this campaign <laughs> is based upon that strategy kahaley gives us some of the some of the polling data um but there's still things we can't control absolutely i mean i gotta believe that fetterman had a strategy until he <laughs> until he had a stroke and, and well, then all yeah. of a sudden you've got a whole different sort of strategy to adapt. reggie has said more than one time and i respect you for this i don't know what the market's going to do i mean i i, I don't I, I don't know where we'll be a year from now six months from now two three four five years from now if somebody tells you they know where the market will be two years from now run run as far <laughs> as you can yep. and as fast as you can but but reggie we can adopt strategies sure based on what we think may happen yep. down the road what sort of strategies do you employ mm-hmm. what, what are the ancillaries that sure. go into making decisions that advise people to invest okay. in certain portfolios right. or others okay S- super question ken and 
Now, one of the challenges in my answer is I have to keep it generic enough to not violate compliance things. I'm gonna, so I'm not gonna talk about, hey, this specific portfolio was up or down this X percent, but I'm gonna get close to that. And it's not a recommendation for any individual, but it does at least give us an idea of, well, at least our investment philosophy. And what we start with with any client is, is, is especially when they're brand new, but even along the way, is get an understanding of a couple of things. You know, everybody talks in our business about risk tolerance. How much can you handle on the downside? And the truth is, it's a little bit like Mike Tyson said, until you get punched in the face, you know, you, you know you've got a great plan until that happens, right? And so you think you're, oh, I can handle 30% downside and then, you know, 8% down, they're squealing. And so there's this risk tolerance. How much can you handle? But there's also... Um, how much can your portfolio handle before your plan blows up? And so there's, it's a little bit more complex than that. So we start off with, well, on a normal basis, assuming next 20 years, how much should you have in the stock market? Because on average, normally, the amount of equities you have will determine both your risk and your return on the long run. So that's the important first question. Then it becomes a matter of style. Do and this is before you select the specific portfolio. Do I want to be more of an always invested buy and hold investor, or do I want to be more on the risk managed side and opportunistic? And so I'll just chat very briefly about those. So uh, always invested buy and hold is kind of like it sounds. I got X amount in stocks. I got X amount in bonds uh, and maybe other things. Uh, but what I, I what I don't do is try to react to what the market's doing. I'm not going to panic because the market. Uh, is down 20% or, or I'm not going to add to stocks just because it's up 20%. I'm going to kind of stick to my knitting, rebalance. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to use the best of breed investments. We're going we're gonna to rebalance regularly, as I mentioned. We'll trade out investments um, because of performance reasons. Maybe there's a better opportunity. To, and maybe within that always invested, there's also different strategies. And again, don't have the time this morning, but maybe you want more of a momentum strategy where your portfolio rotates into those sectors of the market that are outperforming. So you're you know, more in tech last year, more in energy this year, as an example. You can still be always invested and tilting more towards international if they ever start outperforming, stuff like that. Does that make sense? Sure so does. Sure does. Um, and that's, a, especially for the young, that's a fine way to invest. Now, for some people, if they're invested that way and they've been that way this year, it's been a little bit of a painful ride because, you know, one of the classic portfolios that's held up over, you know, the test of time is a 60-40, 60% stock, 40% bonds and cash portfolio. Well, in a year where through the end of September, it's a little bit better now because the market has shifted a little bit, but still through the end of September when the S&P was down almost 25%, but bonds were down over 12, I think it was about 13, 14. Okay, so I lost a little less on my bonds, but they didn't really cushion me much. You know, what's the matter with the portfolio? And, you know, I'm not here to talk about what I think the market's going to do, but I do believe the next leg is, you know, after a bit of a maybe a relief rally for a month or two, will likely, when earnings can continue to disappoint, will be to the downside, as I, I, I am in the camp that believes the recession is almost a foregone conclusion. And the next leg will be lower. I believe at that point, bonds will start to perform their normal, um, you know, you know, safe haven, if you will. Maybe that's not quite quite the right word. But here's the thing. When the market does rally like this, those kind of investors that are in our portfolios will chat with a client and say, hey, you know, we've, we've taken a little bit of a bath. I think the stocks are going to go down some more. Uh, if you believe that, are you still comfortable with 60% stocks? Or do you believe it, it? you would rather be lower? Again, 
making a move in the middle of a market decline is usually the wrong thing to do. So we want to be very careful about that. But those kind of portfolios, what they do is you don't get, you don't miss out when the market all of a sudden ignores you. You, you think it's going to crash. Next thing you know, you're up 12 percent, then 24, then 48. And you're, you're, you're actually going to be participating. And there's a great value to that because usually market timing will, 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 will rob you of returns. Okay. Now, however, we have a lot of clients, especially those who are close and into retirement that say, Hey, Reg, I've got, whether it's 10,000, a hundred thousand or a million or more, I've got this amount of nest egg. I'm retiring in six months. I can't afford this to become $600,000 or $500,000 and buy it whole because I might I'm going to be spending some of it in a year. What if it takes five years to rebound? You know, I mean, I, I've got to have some sort of better risk control. And so in one of our, we got several risk managed portfolios. We've got some products that actually buffer the downside. In other words, in six, I'm going to give you a you know, hypothetical example. In, in the, over the next six years, you might make the, 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 the next 300 or 400% of the stock market's gains. But if it's negative in that six year period, uh, the company will absorb, uh, the investment company who provides this product will absorb the first 20% of downside or the first 10% of downside. Now, you're giving something up for that, and I can't do all that on the radio. Another strategy is we use something, as you can hear in our ads, called our Wealth Protect system. With that kind of strategy, um, if someone is normally 65% stocks, well, in January, around uh, around mid-January, we reduced the amount of bonds we have because we could see bad things happening in bonds. I wasn't smart enough to reduce it completely. Um, late January, we we reduced, we actually liquidated our, our S&P and our international positions. In February, our real estate positions. And so those portfolios have 5% stocks right now, 50% cash and some bonds. And we're ready. I've been sitting on a buy button for those portfolios for bonds for nine weeks. And each week I have a reason to delay. I believe bonds are going to do great, but it's not time yet. When they hit the trend lines, we use trend lines for this to buy. We're hoping we'll be able to buy stocks back 30, 40, 50% cheaper. Uh, but maybe the market zips up now. We'll still buy them back. We don't want to miss the upside. So the point is there are different strategies. Not every advisor uses different strategies. Some just kind of put you in a cookie cutter and off you go. We customize. If we believe a client's better served by one kind of portfolio, We'll recommend that more than another, but we will show them the options so that it, it's their preference and what we believe serves their needs for their goals best. Does that help a little bit? And oh, by the way, no stress. I have to say this, otherwise I get spanked by my uh, superiors at the compliance level. No strategy assures success or prevents a loss. I mean, that's the bottom line. All you're trying to do is, hey, what suits me best and, and increases my odds of enjoying my life? But you must have a strategy. Absolutely. If, someone if needs you wing to, it, it's tough. Sure. And, and, and you know, I've winged it. <laughs> I, I, I've wung it long enough and, 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 and tried it that it way. Yeah. <laughs> wung it, it doesn't work as well as having a good strategy. How can someone reach out to you or a member of your team? Sure. You, you can check us out on our website, you know, at armstrongwealth.com or give us a call, 843-292-9997. Everything starts with uh, with a, just a, a, a no-cost, no-obligation conversation. Okay. Thank you, Reg. Appreciate it, guys. Have a great day. You too. What is it? Disclosure? I mean, what, what do you call this? Disclaimer. Disclaimer. There, disclosure. Disclaimer is the word. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Uh, Joel in Mullins. Thanks for holding on, Joel. Hello? Hey, Hi. Joel. You're on the air. Thank you. So I have, a, I have a question. How do you know? How do we know when we're out of recession? Do things just stabilize and that's where our new norm is? Or do things go down? 
Thank you, Joel. Appreciate it. Couldn't hear everything he said. I thought he asked, how do we know we're in a recession? But I, I've never, recession. or out of a recession, I've never been the guy to ask about the technicals. I mean, I, I've expressed over the airways a hundred times or a thousand times. I'm more of a G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. Something feels a certain way. Uh, my senses tell me a certain thing. Once again, I'm not an economist. I'm not an academic. I'm not scholarly. So I don't know that I'm the guy to say, well, when the technicals get here, well, when the market's down this much, and I mean, I get the two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. I mean, I understand that. But I think there are a lot of other um, inputs that go into the mad formula that decides whether we're in a good. In other words, recession, depression. Um, I'm more interested in good economy, bad economy. What does a good economy look like, feel like? Uh, what does a bad economy look like, feel like? And, um, and I can tell you, we're in a bad economy. I mean, we're in a bad economy because of inflation. And it's pretty damn simple. I mean, when you print that much liquidity and inject it in the economy in that limited amount of time, you're going to violate or distort one of the, I mean, the primary functions of, of, of any economy, and that's supply and demand. I mean, we disrupted, it's kind of a double whammy. We disrupted the supply by, by, by you know, reducing production via social lockdowns or social distancing and, and lockdowns and closing plants and supply chain issues. So not only did we pump enormous amounts of liquidity into the economy, we also disrupted the supply side. And it's just, it's inevitable that you have, when you provide this sort of macroeconomic stimulus, I do sound a bit academic here, but, but it still goes back to a simpleton's view of economic activities. When you distort realities of the economy with macroeconomic stimulus, it's going to lead to inflationary pressures. I mean, it's inevitable. How bad for how long? Nobody really knows. But the suggestions that it was transitory, um, I, I never bought into that. I mean, that, that was Fed talk. That was, um, you know, academia doing what academia does, trying to explain, you know, modern monetary theory and Keynesian, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Keynesian version of the uh, economy. I, I never bought into any of that. And once again, I don't know that I'm the guy that can say, hey, we went into a recession on August 17th, 2023. We came out, you know, July 31st or July 30th of 2025. I mean, I, I don't know that I'm the guy that could come anywhere near close to answering that. I mean, I know when the economy's good and when it's not. I mean, I think I have a pretty good sense of that. I think I understand when trouble's coming. I mean, I think I have a, a fairly good understanding of that. And, and a lot of it is just kind of listening, you know, talking, reading, um, smelling around, as I like to call it. <laughs> you know, do I smell money or not? Do I smell economic activity or not? Um, I say that figuratively, not literally, of you know, course. The question comes to my mind, because if the technical definition, and I guess this is somewhat in question these days, but the technical definition of a recession is two negative quarters, two quarters of negative GDP. And then when you come out of a recession, is it when you have a positive or have two positives? I mean, I, I would imagine, I mean, the, the, the resetting of a recession is when, I mean, what is it when you have three consecutive quarters of negative GDP? I mean, that's a continued or an elongated recession. And I've just never got real involved in, you know, when did we go into a recession? When did we come out of a recession? Mine is more about, you know, is the GDP growing or are people spending money? Um, or people buying homes, or people investing in the market. And, uh, and I just think there are a lot of things to be deeply concerned about. And I think the majority of it, uh, the majority of concern I have, and I've expressed this over and over and over and over and over again, 
is our failure to address debt and our failure to create what I believe is sound energy policy. I mean, those are the two things. We talked a little bit this week about Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. I mean, there's a million opinions on what should be done, if anything at all should be done, but they are the drivers of the debt. And, and it concerns me that we're still spending about a trillion dollars a year that we don't have, aren't collecting via tax receipts, but we're, we're acting as if there's not a day of reckoning in regards to that. And, um, and we must be more serious about our debt because our debt is going to lead to a declining of economic activity. I mean, I think there's correlation with the level of debt, the amount of money it takes to service that debt, that much money not circulating within the private sector. Um, the, as the public sector gets big, here's my opinion. As the public sector gets big and, and, and better funded, the likelihood of the private sector growing becomes um, less and less. The reason that we've not seen three and a half, I mean, the, the only quarters we've seen of, the, of really expensive growth, and I'm talking about three, three and a half, four, four and a half percent, I mean, that was fairly normal 40 or 50 years ago. I mean, you can say we were a still developing economy, an emerging market, maybe, maybe not. Maybe some of that does contribute to the realities. But I think the, the public sector has sucked so much money, so much productivity out of the private sector, it's hard for the private sector to produce now. Remember the analogy I give, when you pass any piece of legislation, whether it's locally, state, federal, that requires funding, Right, I mean, there's only so much money. I mean, we're printing a trillion dollars a year, but it's still not infinite. I mean, there, there's a finite amount of money that that makes up our GDP. Well, if our GDP is twenty-two trillion dollars and the government confiscates twenty percent of that, the likelihood of the GDP growing is pretty good. But if the government starts confiscating forty percent of that, because the government public sector is just not good at allocating capital, it's simply not. But it's not good at accounting for capital. Um, if the private sector built all the roads and bridges, they'd be done quicker and cheaper, but but we've agreed to let the government do that. That's kind of a core function of government to provide some sort of infrastructure. But but every dollar we extract from the public, from the private sector, and put in the hands of bureaucrats in the private se- public sector, uh, it becomes less efficiently spent, period. I mean, it's not bad people. I'm not arguing that that's terrible public sector employees. I'm not arguing that. They're motivated by something other than those in the private sector. So so I think we've gotten ourselves to a place, real quick, Reb, where we've extracted so much money out of the private sector, it's hard for it to grow at two and a half, three, three and a half percent. The only time the economy's grown like that has when? When the public sector infuses capital into the private sector. It's all phony baloney. It's make-believe GDP growth. It's not real. I mean, when the government infuses three and a half trillion dollars in some CARES Act or, you know, Rescue America Act, I mean, that's not real. I mean, it's real economic activity, but it's all funded by the public sector with borrowed money. So there's a false sense of reality that I think we begin to get. And and I think once you, I mean, it, it, I, I've never seen a, um, a flow chart or a sliding scale that says the more money the public sector takes from the private sector leads to exactly some sort of commiserate decline in GDP growth. But it's got to be there because, once again, the private sector is much better at allocating capital than the public sector is. Let's go to the phone. Okay, let's take a break. We're, we're behind a bit. Take a break. We got um, uh, John Decker. Yeah, John Decker coming up at about 730. So let's take a break. 
We'll be back in just a minute. I really should be an economics professor at one of the major universities. Probably not <laughs> Ivy League. I talked to Southern to be an Ivy League economics professor, but I think I could hold my own when it comes to some of these good old conference, the Southeastern Conference, you know, some of the schools in the SEC. Mm-hmm. I'm sure my way of thinking would be embraced really? Really? with many of the, uh, the kids okay. at some of these universities. So. Yeah, not, not prestigious unless you're talking football. Then there's a lot of prestige <laughs> at the SEC when you're talking football. Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent, John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. How are you? I, I hope you had a great week so far. We have. Um, I want to talk real quick or real briefly uh, about since you and I have spoken, I think we both have agreed the likelihood of the Republicans gaining control of the House is almost certain. I mean, by what margin? It's not if, but by what margin will they be in charge? Kevin McCarthy may or may not be the speaker. But, but John, right. as I go through the polling and I start, you know, getting further down this road of determining the majority of the Senate, it looks right. more and more to me like the trend lines are heading very much in the Republicans' favor. I would agree that there is momentum on the Republican side based upon the polling that we see. That being said, if you go through all the Senate races uh, that are within the margin of error, it really is a coin flip. And it really does depend upon what the turnout is for both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Georgia, coin flip. Pennsylvania, coin flip. Uh, Wisconsin and Nevada, also a coin flip. It's a toss up, uh, you know, and I think that uh, anybody who says otherwise is just trying to pull your leg and trying to get you to think, okay, we got this in the bag. No one has it in the bag, and both Republicans and Democrats realize that even 12 days out. But, John, isn't that kind of where the country is today? I mean, isn't that what we should expect in a deeply divided nation? You're talking about Arizona. You're talking about Pennsylvania. You're talking about Wisconsin and Ohio. I mean, the presidential election reflects how deeply divided we are on, on what sort of government we want moving forward. Oh, absolutely. I think that's that's certainly the case. Uh, and it really uh, does depend on each individual state, the candidates in each individual state, whether they can, you know, make their case to voters uh, and whether they represent their party well. You know, certain uh, races I, I, I followed over the course of this campaign, uh, sometimes the Democrats haven't chosen their strongest candidate and sometimes Republicans haven't chosen their strongest candidate to be their standard bearer for the general election. But sometimes that doesn't matter. Even, you know, I can think of many examples of of someone who won the nomination, wasn't the strongest candidate, but then went on to win the general election. It does depend on momentum. It does depend, as you put it, Ken, on the trend lines. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's too soon to talk about red wave. Uh, I, I, I don't think that that is necessarily the case, but we'll have to wait and see. No one knows for certain. That's the thing. Uh, even this even this close to the midterm election. One of the most interesting parts of this campaign season, love to get your take on this. We're talking with Gray okay. Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker. Gray TV owns WMBF and WIS, our affiliate in Myrtle Beach and Columbia, home of the now finally fighting um, Gamecocks. But, <laughs> but there, there's a former president and a current president that candidates are deciding how much is too much, how much is not enough. I mean, that's unique to this race. Um, Can Biden help or hurt? Can Trump help or hurt? And I think it's unique to every individual state and race. What do you say about that? I say you're right. Uh, Yesterday, I spoke with the person who is the chair of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. 
I essentially ask the same question that you just asked me. And it just does depend on the race. You know, John Fetterman is welcoming in Joe Biden to Pennsylvania to campaign for him. Whereas right next door in Ohio, Tim Ryan has said to President Biden, thanks, but no thanks. I got this on my own. You're very unpopular in my state. And we say the same thing play out uh, for former President Trump. Uh, He's being welcomed in and uh, Iowa, uh, but there's not a big race in, in Iowa. Chuck Grassley's running for re-election. He's almost a shoo-in. Uh, but we're not seeing him in the competitive races that are taking place all across the country. And the reason being is because I think the candidates realize if they bring in Trump, then all the attention's on Trump. And they don't want this race to be about Trump. They want this race to be about Joe Biden. And that, that's what they've been talking about during the course of this campaign. Very well explained. John, before I let you get out of here, um, your television show airs on WMBF. Um, we don't, I mean, you, you have no control over what time they air the show. I don't. But, um, <laughs> but, but t- tell us who the guests are and, um, and what your attempt to do is. Well, the attempt is, the, the show is called Just the Facts, and that's what the attempt is, and I think we achieve that. We just give it to you straight. We tell you what's going on in races all across the country leading up to the midterms. We've had Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chair, on, and this week we're having uh, essentially one of her counterparts, but he's elected. That's Senator Gary Peters. He's the chair of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Gary Peters is a Democratic senator from Michigan, and he lays it out in terms of how he sees uh, the final two weeks of the campaign on this week's show. Uh, Not surprisingly, you know, these people are all cheerleaders. You know that, Ken, how it comes uh, down to things. They're very reluctant to just... Speak honestly, even about the Fetterman uh, debate performance. You know, I mean, I think their Democrats are trying to look past that, uh, trying to move forward. And uh, he gives his take about the U.S. Senate. He, too, views it as essentially a coin flip. And Rev, that show comes on at what time? 6.30 a.m. Sunday morning oh, on, on WMBS. There you go. And yeah. I DVR it every week. DVR. <laughs> yep, <laughs> I do. Thank you, John. Appreciate you joining us once a week. Hope you have a good uh, rest of the week and weekend. I look forward to it. Have a great week uh, week and weekend, Ken. We'll talk to you next week for sure. Thank you very much. John Decker uh, with us on Thursday morning, as he always is. And we feel that's kind of an interesting perspective. I mean, we don't – I can't give you a perspective from Washington. I mean, I can't. I'm not there. I would probably be frustrated if I was and maybe frustrated with me. But John's an old creature of Washington. I don't want to say old. I'll, I'll say that complimentary. I mean, he's been around the block as it relates to covering national politics and a senior national editor, White House correspondent, uh, joining a, a feeble attempt at radio brilliance, calling it local radio, is something I think we need to um, and he's a journalist. take advantage of. No if, question if about you remember, it. remember, our relationship with him started, and he was a reporter for Fox News mm-hmm. Radio. And, and this is kind of a compliment to you guys. He felt, you're, you're, you know, the audience was worth him continuing to engage. So once he left Fox News and became the uh, senior national editor, while correspondent at Great Television, um, he reached out to us and said, hey, I'd like to keep doing the bit if it's okay with you guys. And um, and of course it was because I think it gives our listeners kind of an interesting perspective on somebody who probably doesn't agree with everything that we think needs to happen in our nation's capital. Let's go to the phone. Someone's held on for a while. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. I'm like you... Ken, I'm one of those numbers guys, and I'm always reading, studying, because the government will tell you exactly what's going on. You just have to dig, dig and read it. You know, we're in a stagflation. We're not reset. We're kind of in recession, but we're not growing. Then again, I don't know what negative growth means. That's an oxymoron. But 
All I look at is what the government tells me is the monthly savings rate of American people right now is down 83%. Car loan uh, defaults are up 25%. Uh, 401k average down 25%. Pension funds, which is a big one, is down over $4 trillion from $27 trillion down to $24 trillion. And then you look at personal savings at a high coming out of the pandemic of $4.5 trillion with all this money that came in, but it averaged around $3 trillion before all this money came in. Now it's about $685 billion. So that's a big drop. And the labor participation rate is at a 30-year low. It's around 62%. That means people have two and three jobs. So that's not good. I don't care how they put it out. And I, I noticed I was watching the TV yesterday. The guy would not answer the question on a 25% reserve in diesel fuel and heaving oil on the East Coast. That's the problem. And we're getting ready. We're... It's going to get worse for you. It's better. That's the sad part. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. You know, Joe's kind of an interesting guy. He is a lot like I am. Uh, The data will tell you what's going on. There's not a single data point in America today that I'm real fond of. Now, now I'm not a Princeton economics professor. I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. You've heard me say that uh, a lot. And I look at certain things. I mean, like Joe said, he looks at certain things. I look at other things certain things i mean i've been in the uh in the trucking business all of my life manufacturing truck beds and i was um i mean I, i've been led to believe that you know if we're making and selling steel the economy's probably on pretty good footing um once again politicians spend data the media tells a story uh whether it's true or not um i really look at the freight industry when it comes this time of the year and you start projecting what freight loads will or will not be um, when Joe was speaking, I read an article earlier this week about um, some of the ocean container, some of the trucking and rail intermodal, um, some of the parcel shipping, and it really is Black Friday through December 24. Some of the projections, uh, they're, they're all dismal. I mean, they're all terrible. When you look at the, um, the, the projections on ocean container shipments, I mean, they're much lower than expected. When you look at trucking and rail intermodal, much lower than expected. Look at the parcel shipments, FedEx and UPS and their guidance and what they expect to happen during the holiday season are very much less than we imagined they would be. And uh, once again, I mean, you know, economists take liberties with numbers. You know, professors say things a certain way that you're not sure what it is they said. You know, you leave the class and you're like, he said a lot, but I'm not sure I know what he said. I've always looked at it. And I guess my limited aptitude forces me to be um, a simpleton by nature. But but I really believe that when you look at some of the peak, peak season shipping and you look at ocean containers, some of the rail intermodal, some of the freight, some of the uh, parcel shipping. And when I say parcel, I'm talking to UPS and, and FedEx by and large. I mean, they're not the only shows in town, but they're by far the two biggest shows in town. They're the SEC and Big Ten. How about that? I mean, you know, they are, I mean, they're the big boys in the parcel shipping industry. And uh, and when you look at their projections, there's just nothing there to like, nothing at all um, to like. And so, so I mean, that just leads me to believe that late 22 
into 23, that there's some tough times ahead. Um, Reggie explained it. I mean, we're having a rally within a bear market. I mean, we are. I mean, I, I, I just think we've all, be- I mean, I think any serious person believes that there is a, there's another shoe to drop on Wall Street. And, and I think Joe touched on some of that, some of the, um, some of the data points that suggest the, the market is a bit over uh, inflated right now. And I get some of these, um, some of these rallies within, I think Larry said several weeks back, I mean, you don't run a sprint to the bottom. It's a marathon. You know, you go down and you have a, a two or three week rally and everybody gets optimistic about what may or may not happen. And those guys are in the, I don't want to say Wall Street's in the propaganda business, but there's a certain degree of propaganda associated with Wall Street. Um, what if everybody lost confidence in Wall Street at the same time? I mean, what would happen to the investment class in America today? Um, you can't let that happen. So there's kind of a game being played by a lot of different people who have a lot of different interest in what it does or doesn't do. I mean, there's always been the bear bull debate, you know, within the market, the yin and yang of, you know, the bears believe and expect and hope for to some weird way, almost a diminished way, you know, that the market sells out, uh, sells off. And then the bulls are like, no, it's higher we go and higher we go. But, but there's some, once again, there's some realities that we can delay, we, we cannot talk about, but ultimately they rear their head and we have to deal with them. And I think freight shipping is a big part. I mean, how do, you know, we live in a very connected economy. Whether I like it or not, it's still a global economy. Uh, supply chains are important. Shipping and logistics is real important as to how we, um, how the economy function uh, functions as a whole. And, um, and once again, I read yesterday, and I don't want to get specific, I'd bore you to death with a 30% decline or the, you know, the number of intermodal, I mean, it, it would, you know, uh, the, I mean, I'll give you an example. The cost to ship a 40-foot container from China to the U.S. West Coast was $9,630 in June. Today, it's $2,470. That's a 47, excuse me, that's a 74 percent decline in price from June. I mean that that is a that is where the rubber hits the road. Once again, I mean if you had a 40 foot container and you wanted it shipped from China to the US West Coast would be the LA part of the LA terminal. Um it was $9,630 today that same container. $2,470. Uh that tells me a lot about where we're headed, where we are. Um I mean that's some of the backdrop of um, and it's non-academic. I mean, it, it, it's a data point, but it is non-academic. Um, I'm understanding that some of these um, some of these container lines are beginning to cancel some of the um, some of the containers because it. I mean, there's a glut on the market, and they've got to resituate pricing so they can be somewhat profitable. So um, it'd be like OPEC, you know, not producing as much oil. The the, the demand goes down, so OPEC says we're going to cut the spigot back a little bit, not produces much oil there's a game there but um but yeah there, there are a number of containers and ships being canceled across the pacific from china to america because they see the writing on the wall and these folks can't live in make-believe land but I mean, they can't live in fantasy land they're living exactly where the rubber hits the road and they're in the business to make a profit and if there is no goods to be shipped to and fro um it's hard for them to make a profit take a break back in just a few moments. Freehold, Rev has a strong opinion. <laughs> so, what's the point? Rev has a lot of opinions. He just doesn't have any strong opinions. He has a strong opinion, and he begged and pleaded 
um, to allow him to express himself. I and mean, it's just our show. It's not my show. So he can blurt. I mean, I uh, interrupt him. He can interrupt me anytime is, he chooses to. It's not true. But but Rev has I a strong opinion that he wants to aggressively give um, to address something that was said yesterday on our show. Rev, the floor is yours. <laughs> For what purpose does a senator from um, Hampton Point rise? <laughs> I don't. Well, first point of all. Of personal privilege would be the right answer. You're, you're pulling that uh, that. What yeah. overseeing the Senate yeah, yeah. rules there? Yeah, the pomp and circumstance nice. of the South Carolina State well, that, Senate. That actually sounded very, very official, and I, I appreciate can, that. And I can, I can dress it up from time to time. Now you built that up wrong because I was just giving you my opinion okay. off air about something that I was thinking about from the show yesterday, and you thought a lot this. about it, didn't you, Rev? I did. You did. I did. And, and I really, gathered that it really started with Jeff's call, and Jeff was talking about he's Fet- mad with you, Jeff, <laughs> with Fetterman. And his performance, which we were critiquing on the air yesterday, right, from Fetterman's uh, debate performance. And then Jeff called and made the the equivalency, if you will, to Herschel Walker. And he was saying that, you know, and he made it clear that he he would support Fetterman, but he would not support Walker. And then he went down the road of Walker, you know, may have CTE effects. And basically, he's not qualified to be in the Senate. Have you ever seen him talk or heard him speak? He's just and he basically said that, you know, Herschel Walker is not in, not qualified to be a senator, but John Fetterman is. And then we had a listener call later and said, I think your commentary was racist, Jeff. And then Jeff actually called back and said, well, I don't think it was racist to you. And he tried to put you on the spot to, to admit whether you thought or to comment on whether you thought his comment was racist or not. So my point was I watched uh, Fox News Brett Baer last night, he was in Georgia, and he had Herschel Walker on. And as I was watching Herschel Walker's interview, I thought to myself, there is no comparison between John Fetterman and what he's struggling with to make thoughts and get his ideas out and basically to put sentences together and Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker was, now he was very you know political and he had his talking points and didn't do a deep dive, I understand, but he did clearly and succinctly make his talking points. And the only thing I picked up on, okay, and this is my opinion, is that if you if you watch Herschel Walker talk, the only complaint that you could, the only observation you can make is he sounded like a politician with his talking points and had had an ethnic Southern delivery, and that's all. Sound like a Southern country black man? Is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay. So okay. And, and so that's interesting. So my question is. Does does that if if that's now now you know again everybody's opinion but is that racist if if Jeff heard saw the same thing I saw heard the same thing I heard and said well he's obviously has CTE he's not smart enough to be a senator or what whatever his personal opinion is I mean I just wondered you know could his comments be considered racist well I mean Herschel doesn't have a great command of the English language I mean he's a former I mean I'm not I don't know if Herschel's dumb or not I don't have any idea I mean I, you know you don't know if I'm dumb or not. I mean, I don't know if you're dumb or not. I mean, some people articulate themselves in, in some ways and others do it in other ways. Um, the, the point I try, I don't have any idea if, if, if Jeff's comments were racially motivated. I don't don't have any idea where Jeff's heart and soul is as it relates to race in America, racism in America, whether Walker should be in the Senate or not. I do know this. I've heard Herschel enough to, 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 to conclude that he does not have, you know, the uh, the Dennis Miller vocabulary. 
But that doesn't make anybody smart or dumb. I mean, that has nothing to do whether you're smart or dumb, what sort of command you have of the language. Um, and I'm like you. I watched Herschel yesterday on Brett Baer's interview, and he had, I mean, he had his political talking points, and he had them down pat. They all do. I did. I mean, we all running for office have these six or seven things we've got to make sure, you know, they're said when we're being interviewed or spoken to or, or given, you know, an audience of. You've you got to get those things in. But Walker sounds like a like a southern black man i mean he does is that racist i don't know i mean i don't have any idea i would imagine some people who hear what i just said said wow that's racist and others would say he's exactly right i mean it does i grew up in a rural town i mean i grew up in a town with no stoplight around a lot of black people herschel sounds like the black people i grew up with uh, that they would joke with me you know you white boys talk funny from the country um <laughs> freeholds heard me say this on the air when i go to new york I mean, I'm sure they deduct 20 IQ points when I say ain't y'all. I'm sure of it. It doesn't bother me. I'm not insulted by it. I don't think they're, I don't think it speaks to any sort of character issue or flaw we may or may not have. But it's interesting that you made that observation. Now, here's what I do know. I mean, I don't know who's racist and who's not. Here's what I do know. To compare Fetterman's performance at the debate to Walker's capacities and abilities right now most recently on the brett bear show are just completely and totally disingenuous and reek of political activism fetterman sounded like a five-year-old kid trying to tell the lie to his mom but just couldn't get it out take a break back in a minute nearly every election season brings about conversations of intimidation of voters there's actually i read yesterday um if i'm not mistaken it's in arizona the chapter of league of women voters filed some sort of lawsuit in federal court uh, about a coordinated effort, uh, something around Dropbox, as Operation Dropbox, or something like that. Um, that they're basically saying that that groups are staking out and filming voters at ballot boxes or drop boxes in the state of Arizona. So we're in campaign season, and uh, one side accusing the other side of intimidation, the other side accusing that same side of shenanigans. Um, it's always a part of the political discourse this time of the year. Um, I guess some voters are worried about intimidation um, at the polls by groups or subsets of, of the electorate. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Thanks so, for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being on. So there's all sorts of um, stories I've read about potentially intimidation or potential intimidation at the polls. Um, what are you hearing? Right. So uh, uh, first, let's uh, try to address that Arizona situation. So there have been a lot of uh, a couple of complaints filed with the secretary of state's office. Uh, and, and, yeah, there's been video uh, catching people. Or I mean, they're not technically doing anything illegal when they're doing this. Right. Which is staking out, uh, sitting in lawn chairs and actually watching and filming ballot drop boxes as people are dropping them off. Now, where the allegations really come in and, and kind of have a uh, concern here is that there's also allegations of people following others around, filming them, filming their license plates, and calling them mules, which it can be considered voter intimidation, and that's why the investigations are going on from the Secretary of State's office. Is that the only state, Ryan, or are there other states that have filed lawsuits in relation to matters you just discussed? Well, this is the one that's really uh, stealing the headlines. i got to look a little bit deeper to see if there's other states that are being talked about. But obviously there's some polling out there that I know we're going to talk about here in a second about wh- where people kind of feel about going to the polls this uh, this November. Yeah, walk us through that if you don't mind. What does the data show? 
Right. So it's a Reuters-Ipsos poll, and it says that two in five voters have concerns about threats or some type of intimidation at polling stations. Now, when it comes to threats at the polls, 51 percent of Democrats are concerned, but there is 38 percent of Republicans who feel the same way. And one in 10 Democrats and one in four Republicans are not confident their ballots will be accurately counted. Why, Ryan? I mean, what has led us here? I mean, I, I'm asking you to be an opinion guy, and you're not. You're reporting a journalist, and I try to be respectful of that. But what do you think the underlying sentiment in the poll? Why, why do that many people, I mean, the majority of Democrats and, and a you know pretty decent plurality of Republicans are concerned about casting a ballot and whether the ballot will be you know counted as it should be? Well, I think one thing that I think a lot of people might point to is the fact that this just becomes such a polarizing issue. You know, it's in the headlines so much, and and there's so much debate about uh, election election integrity, going to the polls, voting rights, whether or not it's safe. So I think the fact that it's it's being talked about so much and being debated so much might cause a lot of people to think that way. And there are are also some cases out there, um, and those cases in Arizona are an example of that, and you kind of have these poll watchers who have kind of taken amongst themselves to, to, you know, check to make sure that people are voting the right way, which I think has concerned a lot of people, too. So I think all those kind of play a factor here. But isn't it fair to say that when, I mean, the lawsuits are based upon, I mean, interpretation of the Voting Rights Act. And, and the Voting Rights Act says that you can't conspire to intimidate voters. But, but to me, the, the I don't know, the, the ambiguity here lies in the word intimidation. I mean, I, I may feel intimidated at different times in different ways than you do. I mean, it, it's hard to really conclude what intimidation is or is not. Is that a fair analysis? Well, well, you have to keep in mind, too. So, like, in the case in Arizona, you know, if somebody's out there filming uh, on public property of a ballot drop box, that technically is uh, legal under Arizona law. It's when you, you know, are following people around and calling them names that becomes an issue. But you're absolutely right. You know, it is up for interpretation. But I think one thing you wouldn't be shocked to see is kind of maybe law enforcement officials or state officials kind of take it in amongst themselves to put some type of security at these uh, polling stations to kind of encourage people, let them know that it's still going to be safe to vote. But also keep in mind, too, we are seeing some record numbers for early voting in a lot of these uh, states that are going to be very contentious on the midterm. So there is some progress there. Good information. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you. And I've read a couple of those stories. Arizona, I think there's one in Pennsylvania. Um, I mean, just do away with the drop boxes. I mean, that, that, that cleans a lot of that up. Do away with the drop boxes. Make drop boxes illegal. I'm sorry. Make drop boxes illegal. They're too open for, for shenanigans. I didn't say cheating, but let's make drop boxes not a part of the American electing, uh, electing process. Let's go to the phone. Here is Rujan. Morning, Rujan. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Hey, listen, Ken. I'm, I'm, I'm 58 years old, and, and I've been a, a conservative for uh, 42 of those. And uh, every time I turn around, I look at Democrats trying to label uh, me as a sellout or a, a tool of the white man at every turn just because I'm a conservative just because I'm a Republican. Now, I, I, I saw the Fetterman debate and was just absolutely appalled at whoever put him out there because that was just, that, that's, that's just abuse in my opinion. But for someone to, to, to compare Herschel Walker and John Fetterman, in my opinion, 
that is that is out and out racist. It is racist. It's insensitive. It it it, it just tells me that they would go to any lengths to uh, to 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 prop up their candidate. Uh, my my dad told me something years and years and years ago. He said, "Son, you're from the South. People are going to associate your accent with your intelligence." And I got I I I mean you know I, I didn't understand it then, but a few years later I did. I did understand it after I went to Marine Corps. Yeah, I had a I had a Southern accent because I but because I was uh, talking to aircraft every day, I had to straighten that accent up. I had to to get rid of it and make it more, you know, more of a generic accent so the planes could understand what I'm, what I'm telling them, you know. So, you know, I, I, the, you, you look at Joe Biden, if you ain't voting for me, you ain't black. Years ago, he talked about putting this, not wanting to put his kids in a jungle with black kids due to busing, you know, and, and, and other other candidates have said things. I mean, you look at, look at uh, and I agree, but uh, uh, the, the guy Chuck Todd or whatever his name is, uh, 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 Trent Lott. You know, he was a, he was a straight up racist. But they try to paint themselves as someone for the black man or for the brown man or for any other minority and make other people think that they're the best thing, uh, the best thing going. But in, in fact, they're the ones that don't want you at the table. They want to keep you subservient and answering to them so they can stay in power. And if anybody says anything that about Herschel Walker being um, not fit, they can come see me. I'll stand beside him all day long. I'll stand in front of him. I'll stand beside him. I'll stand behind him. And there anybody to do anything to him. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. Rujan can speak from a place that I can't. Now, now I can relate to this, and, and I mean this sincerely. Um, when I got in the political world, I have a very rural accent. I mean, I have a dialect. I mean, I understand that. I accept that I do. And for a little while, it worried me. I mean, I, I tried to kind of like uh, dress it up a little bit. You know what I mean? But let's let's put a new coat of paint on this way you talk. Um, and it was almost rev. And I think you can relate to this. I mean, you can you can identify with this. I mean, you can't relate because you don't talk like I do. But but you've seen examples since we've been together for ten years. When when I begin speaking, that there's an uncertainty if people don't know me. And all of a sudden, that there's a moment of awareness when they go, okay, he's not dumb. I mean, he's not sure. dumb. I mean, he's got this accent, but he's not dumb. I mean, when we sat down with Newt Gingrich, and we sat down with, with the, some of these other political leaders, and, and they hear me say ain't and y'all and speak, and the accent I do, that there's a concern I think they immediately have about whether I'm smart or not. And I'm not I'm not professing to be a rocket scientist, but I'm no moron. I mean, I, I'm, I'm smart enough to to sift through the world and figure out, you know, where the BS is and where it's not. But but there, there's always a moment during the interview when someone says, okay, he's got this country accent, but, but it doesn't mean he's stupid. There's some people out there who can't get there. They believe if you say words a certain way with a certain dialect or accent that you're downright dumb. And I think it's insulting for people, whether you're black or white, red, green, or yellow, to make that analysis or assumption. You know, once again, Herschel Walker does not have great command over the English language. Herschel Walker's probably not a scholarly sort of guy. But to suggest that his performance on the campaign trail remotely resembles John Fetterman's is just trying to make an issue of something there is not one to be made. Fetterman is a, right now, currently a disabled man. I think physically and mentally, the stroke has left him disabled. 
there's nothing um, disabled about Walker. And I think what Jeff said yesterday that I found odd was he basically diagnosed from afar. You know we're going right. to, um, you know, observe his brain or do an MRI on his brain once he's dead, and we're going to find out all these concussions led to this learning disability. I don't know that. Right. I, there's no way you I can that make that diagnosis. I mean, there's no way I could even – I mean, I don't know how you fix your mouth to say that. Now, you can say I don't like Walker because of his stance, his hypocr- hypocrisy on abortion, whether he did pay for it. Gloria Allred shows up in, in Georgia yesterday. Of course she does because Walker has a chance to win now. But – um. But but I, I just think it, it, it's really and truly. I mean, it it, it sh- the Fetterman Walker story to me, one in Pennsylvania, one in Georgia, shows what one political party is willing to do to gain control or maintain control over the Senate in the name of killing babies. I'm not trying to be provocative. I mean, this is about abortion. I mean, this is about codifying law, creating some sort of federal legislation that reestablishes a woman's right to have an abortion whenever she she chooses. Government pays for some and doesn't pay for others. It's an infatuation that I find bizarre at best, wicked at worst. The infatuation that the Democrat Party has with abortion is bizarre to me. I mean, they tried to make the midterms about abortion. We've got rampant inflation. We've got economic uncertainty. We've got uh, Ukraine and Russia. We've got, you know, uh, instability in the energy markets. And they tried their damnedest to make this election about abortion. I have an interesting question, and I wrote it down to myself last night. What do women think? I mean, I've heard enough Democrats say what all women think, that women want control of their health care. Women want control of their body. Women want to be able to abort a baby whenever they choose to abort a baby. And they want to do that with their, uh, you know, their, their medical blessing or their doctor's medical blessing. Is that where the majority of women are? I'm not a woman. I mean, I'm married to one. But, but I, I don't associate with many women. I don't talk to women at the gym. I don't flirt around with women at the bar. I mean, I, you know, I've got one woman in my life. I got two, a daughter. I got a daughter and a, and a, and a wife. I mean, that, those are the two women that I relate to. I mean, I have casual conversations with females, but, but I, there's nothing intimate about it. There's nothing um, deep about it. It's, it's, it's very casual and, and at surface. But, but I'm, I'm, you know, the media... And the, and the liberal left lead me to believe that every woman is furious that her right to have a baby or a baby aborted whenever she chooses to it to be taken away. Is that how women feel? Once again, I'm not a woman. I mean, I'm offended by anybody that is that infatuated with terminating a pregnancy. I think there's a fair debate to be had about conception and the first 10 weeks, the first 12 weeks, and the heartbeat law. And I think there are some serious leaders trying to conclude in a serious fashion what law of the land needs to be as it relates to terminating a pregnancy, rape, incest, life of the mother. But the damn Democrats tried their best to make this entire midterm about, you know, a man or a group of men disallowing women from killing babies at any point during their pregnancy. Is that where the majority of women are? Because that's what the picture is being painted. I mean, that's what we're being led to believe and, and I guess the hypocrisy of the left is, I uh, just said this yesterday, you know that, you know, Dr. Oz is a Turkish-American, but that's the party that celebrates diversity, right? I mean, we're, we're the party that is closed-minded, right? If you're not a white Aryan male, we don't want any part of you. Isn't that kind of the narrative, the media narrative, the left narrative? All of a sudden, the Turkish-American runs for office in Pennsylvania. Uh, oh, no, 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 he's dual citizen. He's got dual citizenship. Can let that guy close to the levers of power. I mean, if he were a Democrat, they'd be celebrating galore. 
a more diverse party versus the the, the party with no diversity. And, and and they're they're accusing a you know Walker of maybe or maybe not having an abortion that he paid for. Now he denies, but the, the so the party of abortion is making abortion an issue for why not to vote for someone. I mean, why wouldn't the Democrats want Walker as a member of the Senate if he's a an abortion hypocrite, right? I mean, they're they're infatuated with abortion. They're infatuated with killing babies. Why wouldn't you want a Republican? who may have killed a baby at some point in time during his life. It's about power, guys. There is no interest in the truth. There is no interest in good government. They want to be in control of every lever available to mankind that the federal government has, and they'll do anything to get it. They'll lie. They'll cheat. They'll steal. Politics is dirty and nasty. I can relate. I mean, if you've ever been in a political crap storm, it's no, it's no fun. But, but the, the extent of which the Democrats will go to today. Remember Lindsey's speech when, uh, when Kavanaugh's trying to get put on the Supreme Court? Sure. I mean, remember what they did? Nothing has ever been substantiated. It didn't matter. I mean, nothing about that mattered. It was a chance to try and deny a conservative judge from being on the U.S. Supreme Court. That was all that mattered. Why did they try to deny? Because that may be a judge that wanted to save babies' lives instead of exterminating babies' lives. This this infatuation with abortion needs to be talked about in the way it deserves to be talked about. They've tried to, once again, not get you or convince you to not pay attention to inflation, to not pay attention to the economy, to not pay attention to crime, to not pay attention to the border, but rather abortion. And they believe enough women believe as they do that the more babies we kill, the better off the country is. I mean, I pulled this article again this morning. This is so bizarre to me. Yahoo Finance had a headline. America's facing a diaper crisis and the anti-abortion movement is making it worse. So, so, so roughly one third, I mean, they're arguing that because of the economic distress in America today, roughly one third of U.S. families are unable to afford diapers. And that's something necessary to keep your baby, you know, dry and clean. But if we'd only aborted those babies, we wouldn't have had this shortage in diapers. I mean, Yahoo's wow. a reputable company. Yahoo Finance is the site I go to. I mean, that's the reason I found it, because I go to Yahoo Finance about every day or two. America's facing a diaper crisis, and the anti-abortion movement is making it worse. We'd have plenty of diapers if we just kill more babies. Hmm. That's where the left is. And they're trying to convince all of us that that's where the majority of women are. And I'm not a woman. I don't speak to many women in that sort of fashion. Is that really where the majority of American females are? Because if it is, I'm disappointed and discouraged and distraught and confused and worried about our future. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, one of the most interesting parts of this midterm election, I mean, Trump's on the ballot, but he's not. Correct. I mean, you got Masters in Arizona. I'm talking about the Senate in particular because the House gets too confusing. You got Masters in Arizona, Vance in Ohio, Oz in Pennsylvania, Laxalt in Nevada, and Walker in Georgia. All were endorsed by Trump. All have run somewhat as an America First candidate. Masters and, and Walker probably won more like America First candidates than some of the others. I mean, that, that brand of Republicanism plays better in some states than it does others. But the interesting part, and I've tried to discuss this as much as I know how, 
is how um, this is the first time Trumpism is on the ballot and Donald Trump is not. And there's an expectation, an unknown that, you know, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? I mean, how well do they do in some of these competitive states? We shall see in, um, in less than two weeks from today. CEO of Connectiva, senior advisor and spokesperson for Lieutenant Governor of New York, Antonio, excuse me, Antonio Delgado, Christina Haley is on the phone. Christina, good morning. How are you? Good. I, you know, and I really appreciate you saying the brand of republicanism. I might take that from you. I like that because the whole party isn't it isn't necessarily represented by the Trump kind of sector. Yeah, but but it is a majority. I mean, we're in deep red South yeah. Carolina, so you would expect us to have a certain worldview and opinion. Um, but but it's obvious that the majority of Republican primary voters have grown fond, uh, whether they like Trump or not, they like this anti-globalist anti-interventionist, pro-nationalist, pro-American worker uh, political party that some of the old guard in the Republican Party aren't real fond of. And I'm talking about Paul Ryan and Jeb Bush and Mike Pence, some of these others. Um, As someone who works and operates in the field of politics, how do you see this dynamic playing itself out? It's really interesting, right? And I think anybody that can tell you they they know or they they can kind of, you know, predict how it's going to play out, is flat out lying, let's be honest. Because to your point, this is the first time we're seeing this. This is the first time we're not seeing Donald Trump, who, no matter what you think of him, is an expert marketer and has the ability to really kind of carry a messaging through um, that I haven't seen often on either side of the aisle or, or really in any other sector, you know, even outside of politics. So I think that's the important thing to acknowledge. And, and when you start to see some of these candidates, particularly Walker and others, that, that can't quite stay on message, whether it's because there's some outside stories and things like that, you've got to wonder if that's going to affect it, right? Um, and, and and I'll say this, on, on the Democratic side, in primaries as well, and the, the fact that you pointed that out, we're facing some interesting issues as well, where there's some farther left candidates. I, I describe myself as, a, as an extreme uh, moderate, so I don't really fit well into that other uh, other sector of our party. Um, And we're struggling with that too, where you see primary outcomes being one way and then a complete and utter kind of roundabout change when it comes to general election voter. So, you know, I appreciate that you acknowledge the House is crazy. I'm not even, I can't even begin to predict anything there. But the Senate races have gotten much more interesting, whether you're looking at Utah, Wisconsin, and things like that. Um, And then even in Pennsylvania, you know, where you see a a Trump-esque candidate, Dr. Oz, up against somebody who has now suffered a stroke. um, And for better or worse, we could, you know, go into that, I, I, you know, experience with family members who suffer strokes and, and them being able to recover, not really being able to make the gains on somebody who can't even really public speak right now. And you don't know if that's going to necessarily translate when people go to vote, but it's an interesting kind of conundrum right now. But, but Christina, and I want to get your take on this. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. have the perception and I'm a, I'm a former Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina. So we have a little um, in common there. Uh, I have a belief. <laughs> I have a belief that, Trump has reset the debate, not him single-handedly, but, but the forces that have aligned. And it's no longer the traditional conservative versus liberal, big government versus small government. It's, it's more of a, I mean, it's, it's a hodgepodge. And I think that's the interesting part of what I'll call Trumpism. It's hard to define. I mean, I'm a Republican from South Carolina, and I cross paths with a lot of different kinds of people. And it amazes me the opinions they have of Trump 
juxtapose to the opinions they have of the way he governed and what the priorities were. Uh, I think you'll agree with this. It's hard to believe that one person can change the mindset of both parties, but Trump did with China. I mean, both parties were sympathetic to China. Um, We were kind of in bed with China. Trump says China cheats. And not only did the Republican Party move, the Democrats have moved as well. Am I missing something or do you agree with that? No, I, I agree with that. And I think that kind of goes to the earlier point that he is an expert marketer, right? He's able to find something and be able to to kind of create a mass appeal to it, to your point. And I think, you know, at some point, I'll, I'll have to say this, and folks might, you know, job might drop since I'm a Democrat, but, you know, he might have done us a favor in the sense of changing this um, dynamic of a conversation. You, you're seeing a ton of new voters, uh, not really sure how they're going to vote either, right? Um, polling anymore is kind of unpredictable, um, that are coming and, and, and showing up uh, in early voting in, in many states already. Um, so it's going to be interesting. It has changed the conversation, particularly China and things like that. And as much as it's very interesting, because at the same time, as you pointed out, right, as these candidates and the kind of the, the Trump fear of influence um, are, are running on an America first platform, a lot of the things that really resonated with most voters and people were some of his international stances, particularly China. So it's again, it's, it's, it's a very interesting um, study. And I think because we're living it, we're not going to truly understand its impact until a few years down the line where we can look back. But it is it's, it's he's changed the conversation and, and gotten to your point, people involved in a different way. It's no longer I'm Republican or this is what I think. I'm Democrat. This is what I think. Right. Especially when you're talking about his presidency. I talk to people all the time who maybe disagreed with a lot of his social views and things like that. But they'll tell you, uh, well, I had more money in my pocket. Right. And, I'll, and then you'll talk to other people who are like, well, maybe it was just the economy at the time and this and that. But I did like X, Y, and Z that he said. So to your point, it's caused a, an interesting uh, dichotomy in the conversation that is that is politics in America. Very well explained. Christina, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I nearly said, thank you, Christina. Have a great day, ma'am. But that would have probably been offensive for a Southerner to say ma'am to someone who works for a lieutenant governor um, in New York. I have no idea if the lieutenant governor is a Democrat. I just assumed that they were. Maybe that's an assumption I Probably shouldn't, a pretty good bet, I shouldn't have made. Um, but, uh, but I thought it'd be interesting to hear that sort of perspective from uh, someone who's kind of um, inside of the government in the state of New York. Uh, my, my, my mind's going a million miles an hour. There's so many things I want to get out of my mouth, and I know I'll screw it up if I try to do it. So let me slow down, take a deep breath, and, and um, decompress for just a second to go back to some of the, um, some of the argument on abortion that we were having uh, before Christina came on the air. Um, the brand of America first without Trump as the centerpiece is to me, the most interesting part of the midterms. Um, I was thinking about tealism. I mean, if masters and Vance and Walker win, uh, and once again, I think Fetterman and Oz is, is more of a toss up. I mean, I really believe we've gone from, um, Arizona being the least likely to win I think to Pennsylvania being the least likely to win. And I think the reason is they've not addressed some of the voting improprieties that we believe happened. I think Arizona has really cleaned up some of what happened in 2020, or we suspect may have happened in 2020. I know Georgia has. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, Georgia's probably done the best job 
of addressing um, what we allowed to happen. Once again, you can say with the pandemic and uh, a very odd time in American history, unsolicited mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, you know, mail-in early. I mean, it went crazy and, and, you know, give Zuckerberg credit. I mean, he saw an opening. He invested $450 million and they won the states that Trump won in 16. I mean, I like to say they stole it fair and square. Uh, you know, that, that's probably a lousy script for somebody on the Democrat side. But after reviewing as much information as I have, it looked to me like um, there were some statistical anomalies that made no sense, but they were certified. And certification means the deal is done. It's time to move on. I think I read that Pennsylvania, there were actually a, a million early votes have already been cast before the debate the other night. Well, I mean, that was the Democrats' intent. They knew Fetterman was in a bad place. They wanted to get as many ballots cast. I'm going to tell you, I mean, I, this sounds lousy, and I think this is unpatriotic for me to say. If I'm running Fetterman's campaign and I know the truth, there's no way I debate. I mean, I just take the hit. I mean, I let the media lambast. I let editorial boards abuse me. That There's nothing worse than me going out there and showing that I'm incapable of doing this job. I mean, the, the optic of him going out there and just appearing to be completely and totally incoherent and not understanding you know, what, 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 how to communicate with an audience. I mean, that, that's worse than any penalty the media and the political body or the political orbit. I mean, I get the voters. The voters would have said, I'm not voting for a guy I won't debate. But I think voting for a guy after, I mean, if, if I'm a conscientious voter and I've heard that Fetterman has issues, but I don't know, and he refuses to debate, I've got to cast that ballot based on the unknown. If I watch the debate as an independent voter, I mean, if I'm a Democrat, I'm a Democrat. If I'm a Republican, I'm a Republican. Now, I don't like Oz, but I'll vote for him. I don't like Fetterman. I think he's got issues, but I'll vote for him. Why? Because I'm a Democrat and I'm a Republican. But that, that large swath in the middle, that, that independent-minded voter, I think is more likely to not vote for Fetterman after watching him struggle as he did than they would have had they just not known. You see where I'm headed? Mm -hmm. I mean, there would have been some independents that said, I'm not voting for a guy who won't debate. But I don't know that it would have been as many independents that saw him struggle the way he struggled. I, I just think, I mean, it's hard as a conscientious person to vote for a guy after that performance, right? I mean, he's mentally and physically disabled right now. He may get well. He, get, he may get better. And as a fellow human, I hope him nothing but the best. I don't want him to be in the Senate because I don't think he has any business being in the Senate. But once again, why is he still a candidate? It's all they've got. And he's a surefire vote for killing babies. Let's go to the phone. Barry and Chirag. Morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, great discussion this morning. Hey, Ken, who, who to your opinion, is the most racist uh, people in America? Oh, man. Um, I mean, Be honest. I, well, I mean, I, I think the tyrannical do-gooder. I think the affluent Northeast liberal has White more liberal. racism in White. his bones than I've ever had. White liberal. To me, yeah, I mean, but but once yep. again, I, I, Barry, yep. and, and I know you, you're you're, you're hesitant to, to judge someone's heart from afar. I mean, I, I'm careful doing that. But if Absolutely. you put me in a box and say I've got to answer it, the, the tyrannical do-gooder, the educated Northeast liberal who calls everybody else a racist, is probably more racist than anybody else is. So that would be the party that a lot of them dressed up in the '70s and '80s blackface. Correct. Oh. Okay, all right, and that's the party that loves pedophiles, right? I don't know about loving pedophiles. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they love them. They love them, Ken. They love them. They love them. Why is drag queens showing up in every southern city lately? Huh? 
and having kids on stage with them. Why is that? Is that by design, Ken? Well, I mean, you've got an opinion. Yeah, it's by design. They also love killing babies, right? It's apparent they do. Okay. They love mutilating kids to make them transgender, right? They made a big part of their platform, gender mutilation, and allowing minor children to enter into medical contracts to have sex change operations, or at least transition from one gender to another. But they won't let criminal. They won't let this. Uh, they won't let the criminal justice system um, put blockers on pedophiles. Correct. That that's inhumane. Well, I mean, that's correct? in about seven states, seven or eight states. Yeah, yeah. So they love destroying cities, right? They love crime. That's that's the point, right? They they love crime, right? White liberals love crime in cities to destroy it. Well, I mean, Democratic-led cities yeah. normally have a higher crime rate than Republican-led cities. Okay, okay. And, and they love canceling people, right? They love canceling people, no matter if they're black I, or I white. I can answer that. I mean, I won't hesitate and say yes. I mean, they, they, they okay, love censorship. So, they so like Kanye to be the only West, show in town. So Kanye West goes out, you know, to go against the narrative, right? It doesn't matter if you agree or disagree. I kind of disagree with a lot of his uh anti-semites stuff right but they cancel him right they, they're they're trying to cancel kanye west right now but i mean adidas has a right to associate with who they choose to okay and adidas was started by who well once again adidas currently it doesn't matter about the history of the company the, the, but the, they were started by nazis i understand that but but the management at, at, at adidas has the right to associate as an endorser who they choose to so so i, I agree with you but a not a company that was started by the Nazis cancels a black man that goes against the narrative. You get what I'm saying? Of course I do. Okay. All right. So so white liberals they love canceling anybody that goes against the narrative, right? So a Andrew Tate, a Alex Jones, a Donald Trump, anybody that goes against what they believe, they will cancel you. All they will burn the earth to cancel you so guess who the number one the number one target will be now elon musk so we will see in the next month if elon musk goes with them or he goes against the grain because there's a lot that believe twitter is a government funded social media platform so we will see in the next month if they go against Elon Musk, all in, go after him. If if I don't know if you've seen Tucker, if he will be national security risk number one. So that's got just, well, you put I, a lot I, on I the love, table I there. But, but well, Barry, and I'll say this: if Musk follows through and does what the Washington Post said and fires seventy five percent of the seventy five hundred employees at Twitter, he means business. I mean, he really and truly is going to recreate Twitter as a fair-minded social media platform that does not censor one side in preference to the other. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Is Jim still there? Uh, okay. Think, yep, Let's Jim. go back to uh, to Jim. Hold on. Hey, so the guy called in uh, previously about that debate, and I kind of want to talk about that too, because Joe Cunningham, he may, he may not have lost that debate, but he certainly didn't win it either. Joe's a, a likable guy, um, but he's not a clear speaker. I mean, he was—it was his speaking was awful last night. 
and he failed to communicate actual details of his plan, I, I really truly think that he expects to lose, and this is just another way for him to campaign and raise campaign funds to use at a later date for something else. Um, but another thing is the left is attacking Henry for saying he wanted to ban homosexual marriage, which is not what he said. So when people bring this up to you all, um, you need to be able to articulate what Henry said. And what he said was it's already um, against the state law and a, um, the state constitution bans homosexual marriage. Just simply put, the Supreme Court overruled that. And Henry said that if it came back and was reversed, he would uphold the state constitution. If Henry said anything other than that he would uphold the state constitution, it would almost be criminal because Henry took an oath to uphold the state constitution. Um, so they're playing on words. Well, we need to play on words back at them. And I just want people to be prepared for that. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. The question should have been, would you support amending the Constitution to allow for same-sex marriage? The governor doesn't have the ability to amend the Constitution. They simply do not. I mean, the, the question to, to the governor, whomever the governor is, do you support or not amend the Constitution to allow for same-sex marriage? Joe basically said, we're in 2022, and the governor of South Carolina is opposed to same-sex marriage. Um, well, it doesn't matter if Henry's opposed to same-sex marriage. The Constitution of the state of South Carolina is opposed to same-sex marriage, and either you amend the Constitution or you don't have same-sex marriages in South Carolina. Uh, is it time to revisit that? I mean, the, the body politic will speak to that. You, you know, are there are there enough senators and House members in Columbia that support same-sex marriage? And this is where we get in some of the cultural, um, spiritual issues, I guess, would be uh, most amplified in this. I mean, I've said it before, Rev. You know, I don't think gambling's good. Personally, I don't like gambling because I think it take it. I mean, people lose their money who don't need to be losing their money. But I don't know that government has the authority to say what you can and cannot do with your money. So, so I think you're if you're a serious politician, you're always in conflict. I mean, you're always concerned about your personal and spiritual beliefs. If you're a spiritual person and how they relate to policy. I can't govern the state of South Carolina as I would run my household or church. Does that make sense? I mean, you're always balancing how much of my personal opinion is allowed to affect my political judgment. Um, I'm a part of a general assembly in South Carolina. It's not the you know the family that I'm the the, the male superior, so to speak. And I'm not talking about males being superior to females. I'm talking about the the, the fatherly role, the male influence of the family. That's a pretty dominant role in American culture. I mean, it's not the only parent that matters. Of course not. But there are certain things expected of that male-dominant figure in that family unit. Uh, a church, deacons and elders and a, and a pastor. I mean, there are certain responsibilities and obligations they have. And it's defined in the Bible. Scripture says we do this and not do that. But I think government is fundamentally different. It doesn't really matter what I think personally about an issue. What 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 is politically acceptable. I mean, what is in the best interest of South Carolina? And I've always been real hesitant as a Christian to believe it's my job as an elected official to impose my Christian beliefs on everybody, whether they ascribe to those or not. I think there has to be a certain degree of open-mindedness about my faith, my belief, my spirituality in relation to the responsibility I've accepted as part of governing the issues that affect every South Carolinian or a large share of South Carolinians. But, but back to, to the debate, 
the, the question would have been, do you support or not? Amended the Constitution to allow for for same-sex marriage. Henry did what you would expect Henry to do. I was texting with one of the people that worked for Henry, and um, and they were saying, you know, just hand, you know, head down, you know, business as usual. We're ten points up. Uh, don't make any big faux pas. Don't make any big mistakes. You know, someone like Joe, who's young and smart. I mean, he's not as clear speaking as you would like him to be. But somebody like Joe has a rough pl- uh, hand to play. And that is being a um, a Democrat in South Carolina. Where do you go? I mean, where do you go in South? Where's your political future if you're a Democrat in South Carolina? I mean, I think Joe's capable. But, but where do you go? I mean, he won uh, a seat in Congress for a single term in a in a ever-changing district of Charleston or Charleston-centric district that is getting bluer. Let me back up, getting less red every day. I mean, it's the Nancy Mace district. But if Joe is, I mean, if Joe runs and wins, he's always going to be in a toss-up election. I mean, there's just not a lot of places for Democrats to be successful in, in South Carolina unless they're in a predominant black district, period. I mean, that's just, that's the reality. Statewide, they have no chance. We'll find out. I mean, the closest race statewide will be the superintendent of education because the education cartel will organize uh, opposed to change. Ellen Weaver has said, whether she, you know, whether she intends to or not, she has said on the campaign trail, we need to change the way we educate young kids in South Carolina. The education lobby cartel establishment don't want any part of that. I mean, the, the, you know, the game's working just fine for them. Well, the results are horrible. We're not improving education in South Carolina. One of the success stories is District 1. I mean, if you look at South Carolina in total, I mean, it, it's still lacking. I mean, it, it's still near the bottom in about every educational category. Dr. O'Malley's done a good job of improving education in Florence District 1. Talking about black districts, talking about Herschel Walker and racism or not. Um, here's, here's the dirty secret in the Democrat Party. 75% of Democrats in elected office today are elected to office because 90% of the African-American vote vote in their favor. Let me say that again. 75% of all Democrats holding office in America today, and I'm talking about in district office, I'm not talking about the presidency. This would be, you know, in Congress, in the U.S. Congress. This would be in, in, um, in state legislate, legislatures. This would be in city and county council. I mean, every 75, three of every four Democrats in office hold that office because they got 90% of the African-American vote. If that number goes to 80%, about half of that 75% lose. They're at least in real toss-up elections. I mean, these are safe Dems because, um, I mean, I'll give an example. One of the most amazing jobs in the last election cycle was Roger Kirby. Roger Kirby's a Democrat from Lake City who figured out a way as a white Democrat in Lake City to win a heavily um, African-American district running against an African-American. I think it'd be very interesting to get, you know, Roger to come on the show because, uh, I mean, Roger's, you know, more left of center than I am, but I don't think he's a raging liberal. I mean, he's a common sense, reasonable kind of guy. I mean, I like Roger. I know Roger well. I consider him a dear friend. And, um, and kind of a political confidant. We bounce things off one another in the political spectrum and world. Some of the content you've heard over these airwaves at times has come from a text or, or an email or a, a story that Roger, Roger sends me. But, but you know, if, if the Republicans figure out a way to turn 90 into 80, Democrats are scrambling in a big, big, big way. 
843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Amber in Florence. Good morning, Amber. Good morning. Good morning. How are y'all? We are good. You're on the air. Thank you. I uh, had to stop listening for a minute. I don't know if any woman has responded to you earlier about the abortion uh, thing. Uh, it's disgusting. And I, we don't agree with it. And more children have been aborted than slaves were killed in the United States. And um, I don't know. I, I heard somewhere someone said something like, our greatest riches lie in the graveyard because we have no idea the innovations that the aborted would have come up with. And to paraphrase Tom McDonald's song, <laughs> explain to me how bacteria is proof of life on Mars, but a fetus is not proof of life on Earth. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for calling. Appreciate you um, letting us in on your on your personal opinion. Speaking as one fellow fetus or one former fellow fetus to another, I'm glad we have people advocating for life. I want to say that again. As a former fetus, speaking to a bunch of former fetuses, we hope it's a bunch, I am thankful that somebody advocated for life. And and I just, for the life of me, Rev, for the life of me, uh, I don't understand. <laughs> See what you did. I mean, it, well, the media has, I don't know, uh, Friol said something a second ago, real interesting, talking about Herschel and, and Fetterman. Friol walked in the office or walked in the studio during the break and said, am I that dumb? I mean, it's obvious those guys aren't in the same mental capacity. I mean, where, where they are right now are just completely and totally different than one another. Okay, Walker doesn't have a command of the English language. I mean, he's not a well-spoken person. I mean, he can come across as a bit simple and, and simplified. But, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have the ability to coherently understand issues and subjects and topics. I mean, there are a lot of people much brighter than I am that don't have the, don't have the ability to articulate themselves as clearly and succinctly and precisely uh, or inexactly as I do. It doesn't mean anything about intelligence. I mean, to believe somebody has an expansive vocabulary means they're real smart, and somebody who doesn't means they're real dumb. Check the bank account sometimes of the well-spoken and the not-so-well-spoken. not, well, not so spoken. I mean, we read a lot into these, I don't know, narratives that we allow the media to gin up and, and, and propose and present as um, some neutral version of reality. Just simply not the case. And, um, and we were talking about the abortion issue. And it seems to me, when you read the news reports, and I read probably more than anybody listening to my voice because I have to. I mean, it's part of my job. I prep about three hours every day for a four-hour radio show. My prep time includes reading article after article, story after story, essay after essay. Some things bore me to death. Some things I can't get enough of. But through those travails, I've concluded that the media argues there aren't many women on the side of life. Women want to aggressively make that decision at their discretion. If a woman wants to terminate that that um that pregnancy, they believe they're entitled to do that anytime they so choose. That's what the media tells me. Now once again, my interactions with women are very limited. I have a wife that I speak with multiple times every day whether she likes it or not. I have a daughter that I normally speak with multiple times every day um whether she likes it or not. But, but the other relationships in my life with females are very um, surfacy. 
I mean, they're, they're not intimate. They're not in depth. They're not business relationships. We have lady salespeople here, you know, on, on our, on our staff, we talk about business and ads and, you know, did we get this sign or that sign? But, but there's no talk of abortion. There's no talk of, Hey, what do you think about this? What do you feel about that? But if you listen to the media and if you observe some of the narratives, I mean, it's as if there are very few women who want that right taken away. And it's almost like they're a great, every woman out there is so offended when the body politic says we're going to limit your right to kill that baby. Now, now I think serious people have come up with serious proposals. I think rape, incest, life of the mother, um, you know, the gestation period, you know, from um, uh, conception to, I mean, I, you know, th- th- those are fair debates. I mean, I think they're scientific. I think they're biological. I think they're spiritual. I think there are a lot of things that go into having that sort of, of debate. But where Fetterman stands, I mean, Fetterman wants the government to pay for a woman having an abortion the day before that baby is to be delivered. And the media tries to suggest to us that that's the way most women feel. And damn if I believe it. I just don't believe that. I mean, I have more faith in humanity, man and woman, than to believe that as true. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Morning, Mike. I'll tell you, Ken, uh, you, you latched on to the truth there. Women are way too, I've been on this planet for a while. And women are way too complex to figure out. <laughs> they they have all kinds of graduations of meaning and uh, values. Uh, and uh, I would say in most cases, women are a lot more complex than men as far as their, their uh, how they work out things. And so this uh, this caricature of what women are supposed to be is just it's just uh, stupid. And I don't know how to say it, but what I really wanted to get in today, if I got a chance, was uh, I listened to Jeff, and uh, it was it was it's really uh, entertaining sometimes to hear him torture the logic to uh, justify his uh, uh, less than uh, democratic Republican constitutional beliefs, and uh, he, and he. Uh, but he uses a couple of things. What about is every time you would get on something, he'd say, what about this squirrel over here? What about uh, Meadows or Trump did this in 1982? And um, that, that's real good, but that's not really uh, that's not really uh, arguing with the situation. And uh, I think it's not really honest logic. And I think he's tortured the logic a good bit. But this whataboutism and deflection, there should be a rule about not being able to use deflection in uh, any kind of discussion. Uh, that, that would just be a ground rule for both people. Thank you, but Mike. Appreciate it. But, but in all honesty, the majority of voters, I mean, it's clear, the majority of voters care about inflation, crime, and the economy. That's the last thing Democrats want to talk about. How many Democrats are talking about crime? How many Democrats are talking about inflation? How many Democrats are talking about the economy? The Democrats are trying to convert the conversation to something about Trump. Remember when Trump said, remember when Trump did, what about Herschel Walker in 1983? What about Herschel Walker in 1992? Um, I, mean, I just don't believe that's what voters are paying attention to. And that's why I'm bullish on the Republicans' chance to be successful. I mean, we have these incidental conversations. And they're, they're, they're fun. They're, they're interesting. They're provocative. I think they, they, they serve us well. 
But at the end of the day, people are not going to the poll two weeks from now voting on whether or not a woman should be allowed to have an abortion, when should be allowed, who should pay for it. Eggs are twice the price they were. Gas is a dollar higher than it was. Um, crime is rampant in most American cities. That's kind of sort of where people will cast their ballot and, and kind of lay lay their claim. Do want to, before we take our break, got a call and we'll get there on the other other side. Do want to make an announcement. Um, the district reached out to us earlier this week, and uh, we've got a probably the biggest football game in the history of Florence County, South Florence and West Florence. I think one is number one in the state. The other is number three in the state. Remember tomorrow in the 9 o'clock hour, we call it decompression hour. Jason Priester, uh, a Clemson guy, calls in. Chris Clark, a Gamecock guy, calls in. Well, tomorrow we got something in store for you that I think will be fun and interesting, and that is the coach of the South Florence Bruins and the coach of the West Florence Knights will be in our studio in the 9 o'clock hour previewing. I mean, I'm going to try to get them to fight one another, but they'll probably <laughs> be respectful of one another and, uh, and give you kind of a preview of the number one ranked team in the state, South Florence, and the number three ranked team in the state, West Florence, and probably the biggest football game that Florence has ever seen. So that's tomorrow in the nine o'clock hour. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. This has been one of our better shows. That ain't saying much, but this has been one of <laughs> Look at Friol shaking his head. He's like, you know what, Friol's head, I mean, he was aggressively shaking his head when I said, he said yesterday's show was good. Yeah. Today's been a kind of a repeat of yesterday. A lot of activity, a lot of interaction. But what Freehold's um, kind of head nod suggests to me is, yeah, the others suck, but this last two days we've gotten lucky <laughs> I mean, and had something finally, to finally. be kind of sort of proud of. And two in a that, row. That's not fair. But yes, I agree. Okay, good deal. <laughs> that's not fair, but he agrees. Imagine, imagine that. Let's go to the phone. Anthony calling from North Carolina. Good morning, Anthony. Hey, morning, fellas. Um, first of all, before I forget, kind of like the same way they changed the definition of the word vaccination, we're changing the definition of the word racist. I hear a lot of people saying they know a lot of black racists too, and to be a racist, you have to have power to be a racist. Other than that, then you just prejudice. When I was small, most people would just call prejudice, oh, he prejudiced. But the word racist has been thrown around so much that I don't believe they have the right terminology for it. For Kanye West, now that they're getting rid of him because he is exposing it. Now, as you know, rap today on the radio is uh, is embarrassing as far as the black people. It's embarrassing. I mean, you could talk about killing black people all day long, but as soon as you mention about anything about a Jew, they pull you off of the air. And what somebody was saying is that Jews, Jews and whites, whatever, the top of the line for the radio stations, the music has to go through them. So it's not black people out here putting out these black, yeah, it's black artists, because if you put money in front of anybody, they'll say and do anything. But as us mature black people, we're embarrassed by what's going on on the radio stations, because, but it's not in our control. When I was younger, you either had to have a, a sticker on that kind of music, or they played it at like 10, 10 at night or later. Now they play it all day long, and we're not in control of it. And whenever Kanye West exposed it, who are the people that's letting this go out to all the young youth all over the country, and it is mostly Jews, they got rid of them. My last point is me being a brother, Herschel Walker, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing. He he has some problems. Uh, he has, he was once uh, a sports announcer back in the day, and he did he talked better, faster, and clear and everything. Yes, he still had a, a country draw. I'm from North Carolina, but that don't mean nothing. I mean, it's what you say, not how you say it. But 
what he was saying was, uh, I believe his name was Jeff, the guy, was that Fetterman can get better. Herschel Walker is only going to get worse. If you've been listening to him over the years, he's getting worse. And as Americans, are we really proud of Fetterman, Biden, Trump, or Herschel Walker as far as them leading us? I mean, we can find better people that are saying the same thing they're saying. That's the reason with Trump, the problem with Trump. I voted, well, I didn't vote for Trump last time, but I will vote for him this time because I vote for my interests, not because, like Trump say, we all racist. I'm the least racist one in here. But uh, Trump, all of them, it, it is someone who is saying what Trump is saying but can say it better to the point where we won't be embarrassed, and Herschel Walker, too. It, it, it's a point of embarrassment when it comes to that level of, of your job. You know what I'm saying? If you have a, a boss man that speaks like Herschel Walker or Trump, you're not going to respect them that much, especially if they're leading the country in ways. But that's all I want to say, fellas. I'm starting my own podcast, and when I call in here, it helps get the butterflies out. So when I do get started, well, I keep calling. Hey, man, you make a lot of sense. Yeah. Keep calling. We appreciate you um, you calling. It's one fellow Southerner to another. I like somebody with an accent. You got one. And, I am and one. Let, and let us know the name of your podcast so yeah. we can let people know, too. So what's the name of your podcast? It's AMP Podcast. Good deal. Good deal. Uh, thank you, my thank man. Call, hey, call more. Call call more often. You know, when, when I hear somebody like that speak, I, I just automatically go to, man, so many of us have so much in common. I mean, we're not on different planets. We're not from different stratospheres. Here's what has happened in American politics. Trust me on this. But I mean, there are a lot of things I'm not real certain about. There are some things I am sure as I'm sitting behind this microphone, you've got one group with torches you've got another group with pitchforks and as long as the guy with the pitchfork is mad with the guy with the torch he ain't mad at who he should be mad with and trump exposed some of that i mean he, he brought a, a level of abnormality to a very normal world you, you know the analogy i use or the um the story i tell about somebody put all those deck chairs on the um on the cruise ship where they're supposed to be they're not there by accident I mean, they're waiting on people to sit around the pool the following day. So some of the pool hands go out the night before. They clean the chairs. They put the chairs where they need the chairs to be. I mean, they've got an orderly way of doing things, and it's always that way. Well, somebody put the deck chairs of American politics exactly where they want them. And Trump shows up and begins rearranging those deck chairs. They don't have to be here. We don't have to say that. I mean, I can tear off China. I, I can do this. I can do that. And everybody was taken aback to begin with. But but the people that hate, you know, I'm thinking about Trump world. It's hard to describe or define exactly who the Trump voter is. I mean, our previous caller said, I'd vote for him this time. I didn't vote last time, but I probably would this time because I think he has my interest at heart. Here's what you can tell. The people who oppose Trump so passionately are those who put those deck chairs where they are. They're not where they need to be. They're not there for you nor I. They're not there for the guy with the pitchfork and the lady with the torch. They're there for the ones self-advantaging themselves at the trough of government. Never forget that. The guy with the pitchfork is not your enemy. He may have a different political belief than you do, but he's not your enemy. The enemy lies in Washington. It is a system of politics that is predicated upon how much favor you've gained, how much money you've gifted, how influential you've become, or are you a 10-year congressman who turned into a lobbyist who now works for a K Street firm? That's the system, guys. And as long as I'm mad at you and you're mad at me, 
we're not angry with who we should be angry with. That that is the. I mean, if I don't say anything on the radio for the last ten or the next twenty years, I told Reb ten years ago. He was kind of a newbie to politics, and and I, I said one morning on the air, Reb, they don't care about you. And, and during the break, he said, "You don't mean that." I said, "Of course, I mean that." I mean, absolutely, they they could care less about Reb. I mean, they, they're worried about they're worried about their own self-interest. They're self-dealing. Is it the Biden family? Is it the Bush family? Is it the Cheney family? Is it the Clinton family? Is it the Trump family? It's probably every damn one of them. But as long as I'm mad with you and you're mad with me and I second guess your opinions and you second guess my opinions, as long as Jeff and I call, you know, and, and argue about, you know, this or is Walker competent enough? Does he have some sort of um, post-concussion syndrome? Is, is Fetterman the kind of guy that we really need? I mean, as long as those are the, are the debates, we're not focusing. We have allowed a corrupt political system to be constructed right before our very eyes and people are getting far more than they deserve by lobbying and petitioning their government period we're talking about pfizer before you know early in the show uh talked a little bit about pfizer pfizer made 70 billion dollars in profit last year on selling you a vaccine that's really not a vaccine scott godlieb left the leadership role of the fda to become a pfizer board member I mean, he did it because he's a good guy. He just loves America, wanted to do the right thing. Or did Pfizer need some work done? I mean, the, the inside baseball is out of control. I mean, I, I do believe that, that we have a, a leftist infatuation with abortion that, that borderlines on evil and wicked. I do believe that with every fiber of my being. But, but the, political si- the political system is cancerous at its core. And the reason it's sick is so much money is dependent upon certain things being done or not by our government. I mean, imagine Pfizer making $70 billion a year on a faulty premise. I mean, how many times were we misled by some government agency, and how many times was that government agency or agent misled by Pfizer? What is Pfizer's punishment? We need Pfizer. Pfizer's a great American company, but they played the game in a way that should be they should be held accountable for misleading the American public. How many people were complicit in that? How much influence does Big Pharma have on the NIH or the FDA or the CDC? I mean, do you really believe those are altruistic organizations that genuinely, genuinely want to do right by the American people? I mean, do you think Anthony Fauci is sincerely motivated by keeping people safe or making sure Pfizer gets what they need or Merck gets what they need or Glasgow Klein? I mean, it's all these big pharma companies that have so influenced, and it's not just pharmaceutical companies. It's the military-industrial complex. I mean, it's uh, General Dynamics. It's uh, Honeywell. It's Boeing. It's all these companies that have gained such favor with the American political system. And when you wonder why you don't get a fair shake, I mean, if you're going to work seven to five every day of the week and you can't get ahead for anything in the world, remember, the GDP is finite. If somebody's getting more than they are entitled to or deserve, somebody's getting less by necessity, pure math. I mean, if, if, if Freehold is lobbying the government and is getting a million dollars a year that he shouldn't be getting because he's not really producing anything. In fact, he's probably extracting from the from the uh, the GDP. But but he's gained political favor. He's gained governmental advantage. He's in a much better place than I am because he's lobbied the government. He's petitioned the government. He hadn't made a better widget. He hadn't contributed 
you know, to the GDP what he extracts. There's too much of that going on. And for everybody that gets more than they deserve, the simple math suggests somebody's getting less than what they deserve. And the American working class have had their ass handed to them for long enough. And they're finally understanding how this game is played. They don't understand the blood, guts, and feathers, but they understand with some detail and specificity why it feels like they're not getting anywhere. The American working class wages have been stagnant how long? 40 years. 35 or 40 years. I mean, if you're making 40 grand a year today, it's like making, you know, uh, 20% below. I mean, we know what poverty level is. We know what it costs to keep a family afloat. I mean, I do. I wonder how some families make it. I mean, I'm not wealthy, but I do okay. I wonder how some families make it from one week to the next. I mean, I know what they do for a living. I know how much money that profession normally pays. I know how many kids they've got. I know they got one kid in college. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world are they doing it? They deserve better. But, but the political orbit is convinced, you know, the guy with the torch and the lady with the pitchfork that the other is the problem. The pitchfork's the problem. No, the torch is the problem. No, Washington is the problem. And until we root out the corruption and the, and the, the, the self-dealing and self-trading and, and self-paying, we're, we're going to continue to just be angry and frustrated with one another. And, and that's why I love America First, because it's a new start. It's a fresh start. Is it potentially corrupted? Of course it is. Is Peter Thiel sincere and genuine? in his interest of um, opposing China and opposing globalism and opposing intervention. I don't know. I don't have any idea. But he's the only horse I've got. I know the others aren't, right? I mean, Teal's a big question mark. I know where McConnell stands. I know where the Bushes stand. I know where the Cheneys stand. I know where the Clintons and, and you know, I, I know where the Obamas stand. I don't know where America first stands. It's a, it's a clean sheet. It's, a, it's an open slate. We are going to decide what this political movement eventually becomes. And I just pray with every fiber in my body that 30 years from now, I look back and say, wow, it was good, exciting, rejuvenating, regenerating to be a part of a political party that had enough of the old and found a new way to establish a government that works for the American people. Let's go to the phone. Dwayne in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hi, Dwayne. Hey, fellas, good morning. Enjoy the show. Thank you, Dwayne. Yes, sir. Just real quick, if we are going to use the words that somebody chooses and how they articulate them as a standard, how smart they are and if they should be serving in office, then we might as well impeach Biden right now. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And basically, that's all I got to say. That's a lot. Thank you. Appreciate mm-hmm. you calling. Um, Biden talking to Fetterman would be like Bob Dylan and James Brown trying to talk to one another. Nobody would have a clue what they're, what they're talking. Now, now, Fetterman's got an excuse. Well, they both had excuses. One of them's, you know, 80 with dementia, and the other just had a stroke. But that is the Democrat leadership. I mean, their eggs are in those baskets. Joe Biden endorsed John Fetterman for Senate in Pennsylvania. I mean, that's like Bob Dylan singing a James Brown song. Nobody knows what they're talking about. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Earl in Bennettsville. Morning, Earl. Good morning. Good morning. Got a, got a couple of quick comments uh, on education. There's an old adage, 
if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. I think that, you know, you hit the nail on the head with South Carolina being near the bottom of the list on the education. It's time for a change, and it's been time for a change. This state deserves better than we're getting right now. Uh, Second comment, when it comes to abortion, there are too many ways out there to prevent pregnancy for a woman to have to kill a baby. Condoms are free. Birth control pills are free. Uh, Keeping your legs together with an aspirin clench tight between them is another way. So don't hand me that garbage about, you know, a woman's right to abortion. It's a woman's right to birth control and a man's. Both take responsibility. And one other comment. You know, I keep hearing the term African-American. Well, let's use European-American as well. If we're going to use African-American, then let's use European-American and see how that sits with the other races. You know, Mexican-American, Hispanic, okay, Hispanic, I agree with that, Hispanic uh, heritage, European heritage, African heritage, but in all likelihood, none of the aforementioned people have ever set foot in one of the countries that they claim heritage from. I hope y'all have a good day. Uh, and be safe out there. There are a bunch of idiots on the road. Thank That's- you, sir. Appreciate it, Earl. Thank you for calling. Thank you for those um those comments. And, and I'll close with this. I mean, this is a bit preachy, I guess. Um, and I feel like I'm trying to run for office and get people to vote for me. You know, I just refuse to believe that women feel about abortion the way the media tries to lead me to believe women feel about abortion. I refuse to believe that black people feel about white people the way the media tries to convince us that we feel about one another. I refuse to believe that white people feel about black people the way the media tries to suggest. It's almost like the media has already played the game and they've got to get to that outcome. In other words, we we were infatuated with abortion, so we got to convince everybody that women are so committed to preserving that right. Let's have an honest debate. And Rev, that really goes back to the um the, the the content of the show yesterday, and I think it's one of our our better shows. I mean, I don't know that our shows have central themes, but yesterday the show was about is extremism going to be identified and and labeled by one political party and anybody considered extreme um, charged with a crime? I actually wrote down this morning. First thing on my sheet. The vaccine is not a vaccine. The election was stolen. Climate change is not real. If we let Democrats stay in charge and continue to march toward, you know, censoring any debate on any issue, there could be a day, and I'm not trying to be a fear monger. There could be a day that if you say the vaccine is not a vaccine, you've broken a law. If you say the election was stolen, you're charged with a crime. If you say, I don't buy into climate change the way liberal activists argue it is, you're, you're breaking a law. I and mean, that's where we're headed. I mean, you censor the debate. You, you, you label somebody extreme when they hold a position contrary to liberal thought or liberal premise. That's where we're headed. Trust me. When one way of thinking dominates how we disseminate and discern, I mean, information, how we distribute information to the masses, I mean, that's a dangerous, scary, spooky place to be. Thank God for talk radio. And I mean this sincerely. I don't take lightly nor for granted the fact that I have four hours every day to espouse my views, to say my peace, to exclaim my virtues, 
to give a phone number to allow others to call in, agreeable or disagreeable, to say what it is you think. I, I want that to continue. But but I think talk radio is the last bastion of, of truly free thinking. I hope Elon Musk fires 75% of the people who work at Twitter and replace those with with people who believe in fair debate and free dialogue without fear of consequence or punishment. We know what Twitter did during the 2020 campaign. We know what Facebook did. Now, the, 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 the concerning part of Facebook is Zuckerberg said the FBI came to see him. Hmm. I, I mean, know. you know, Zuckerberg didn't go to the FBI. The FBI went to him and said, hey, uh, there's going to be some Hunter Biden laptop stories. We're asking you to use your algorithms or adjust your algorithm. That's scary, guys. So, so I'll conclude. Is the vaccine a vaccine? I think we're finding out every day it's not. Was the election stolen in 2020? Maybe, just maybe the Republicans gained their leadership, appoint a, a, a duly elected committee of reasonable people, and we further investigate. We explore every avenue of opportunity to find out what happened. Is climate change real? We've already taken an official stance there. We don't know. But let's have those debates. Let's have those conversations. Let's have those disagreements. And as long as I've got breath in my body and hosting this radio show, you can count on it. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.